gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. You should know how this goes, but in case this is your first episode for whatever reason, we are a movie podcast that reviews pop culture. We've been around for a long time. Every year we do one of these episodes, at least one of these episodes. Counting down our top tens, we've got four hosts this year. We have four lists of ten. We're going to be doing them in the batches of numerically, so all four of us will get our number ten, nine, etc., all the way up through number ones. Who knows how long this is going to last? I'm going to be uh, driving uh, the ship here. We've got Katie Rich, David Ehrlich, Matt Patches, myself, Dave Gonzalez. Let's kick it off. Wow. With holy Katie cow. Riches. Holy yeah, cow. That, I'm, like, I'm getting whiplash from how quickly this is going. This is what happens when Dave leads the show. Yeah. That's, when our lightning round questions are over two minutes long, this is how <laughs> it actually starts. Uh, Katie, what's your number 10 movie of 2022? Wow, not even any setup. You're not going to help me out with uh, my memory and how any of this <laughs> well, works. Well, uh, this is, is a is it in documentary else's film. Sometimes it is not you do on that. anybody else's list. Okay, I figured as much. Um, uh, but a surprise, you are the only person who didn't pick another film for number 10. So enjoy wow. this spotlight moment. Uh, well, I want to say, first of all, before I start talking at all, is that my memory for many of these films is terrible. Like, I just cannot remember things that happened in large chunks of 2022 but i do remember in intricate detail a lot of movies that i watched with my children i did not put lila crocodile on my list despite uh thinking about it because i have watched <laughs> Does it, it have the a best lot. musical moment of a movie this year it mm, it's close i don't know i need to go back and look at my list of but best music would it's you say that some- your your spotty memory of these movies says less about the films than it does about the year that you had about parenting in general. And also, as we sure. get further down my list, I saw many of the films on my list all very close together, which isn't helping anything. But there is one movie that I watched with my children. I mean, so so my kids and what they want to watch dominates a lot of what I watch these days, but it also affects how I feel about them. And I talked about this last year with Mitchell's versus the Machines, which was my number one movie of the year um, and how watching it with my kids kind of made me grow an appreciation for it, um, which doesn't always happen. That, that, was, I mean, that was the same last thing you said about fuck. Yeah, that was the same thing you said about Foxcatcher back in uh, 2014. That's true. You were watching it with your kids all the time. I just found other uh, children to watch it with. Um, Yeah, Mitchell (laughs) vs. Machines came out last year. Village children were roped into your house, yeah. That's uh, that's what we were saying about how the year felt endless batches. That was last year. My God. Now I'm thinking about Foxcatcher and how it's the best Gru movie. Anyway, go. (laughs) So, a movie that I watched with Charlie, who was six and a half, and that I... Felt like should go on the list as a result in honor of Charlie and also a good movie is Goodnight Oppie, a documentary oh, about the two uh, Mars rovers. Oh, uh, in the log. It is wow, right off the bat, dragging Katie's picks. This cute movie about Mars oh, rovers. They go God. to Mars, David. They go to Mars. These two rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, were launched to Mars in 2003, and they were only supposed to be there for like 90 days or something. And they lasted 13 years. These and two dirt. rovers tootling around Mars. And so it sounds kind of overly cute. And there are certainly parts of it that are overly cute. They kind of make 
CGI recreations of these rovers. And they don't anthropomorphize them or anything, but they, you kind of watch them in their adventures on Mars as if there's a camera with them, which of course there wasn't. They were just taking photos from their little rover bodies. Um, Angela Bassett does like voice the like log entries of the robots, which gives a little bit of personality. But there's also all this incredible footage of the scientists at uh, JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory that NASA runs, which ran the whole thing. Um, and it starts in 2001 or whenever, when they start developing it. There's just so much footage of them. And you watch these people age, who they're being interviewed now. And you look at them 20 years ago when they're younger or have more hair. Or one of them was like a high school student watching the launch. And then she went on to work there. Um, and it's like that scene in Apollo 13 when they finally get everyone safely home, except it just happens repeatedly of them launching it and then landing it and the camaraderie among them and kind of the awe of watching people do something incredible and the awe they feel themselves for their work and these creatures and their scientists. So they're very clear, like they're not people, the robots aren't people, but they kind of can't help but have affection for them as these things that they've made. I found it really winning. I watched it with Charlie a couple times. He's like, they sent me the screenplay and he read the screenplay, which I love. So I have a lot of affection for this movie, but then partly of Charlie's affection, I grew more of it. And I, you know, couldn't think of anything else that was a more worthy number 10. It's a good movie, David. Um, that says more about the you than the movies, for sure. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> listen, we come well, here not to not to uh, bury not documentaries, to, but to praise not to them. So bury these Mars rovers and I mean, just die alone been, on Mars. Yeah, exactly. Oppie has <laughs> suffered enough. <laughs> Uh, well, we all get to, the, the three guys get to talk about one movie that wow. all popped up as number 10. What? Uh, for the, David Patches and myself. Wow. It is a story that appears to be Close Encounters until it turns into Jaws. It has Jean Jacket up in the sky. It is Jordan Peele's Nope. Wow, <laughs> nope. We all picked nope. We all yepped nope. At the same you, you, We all yepped nope at number 10. Uh, oh God, you can't say the word yep around me because I just think of the Martians in Sesame Street right now. Uh, yep, yep, and this movie yep, got yep. 10 yips from me, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is the ultimate scale. Yep. Wow. Um, uh, what's fascinating about nope, I mean, what's fascinating about the reaction to nope, there's so many fascinating things about the movie, is that, you know, I was like floating on air after I came out of the screening uh, I loved it. It was far and away my favorite of the big Hollywood movies that came out this summer. Uh, and I wasn't alone in that by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't think that it's sort of its reputation calcified into what it is already on its way to becoming uh, before the end of the year when suddenly it was appearing really high on like the Cahiers du Cinema list and, and uh, you know, very all other like highbrow lists and lowbrow lists. And and it seemed to really cross the board and be the one Hollywood blockbuster from 2022 that was sort of crossing over uh, to all channels. And I think there are a lot of good reasons for that. But I think, you know, it was seen also because it's like relatively muted box office compared to Jordan Peele's other movies is maybe sort of um, a slight step backwards for him. Uh, Has anything happened never... in the world since he last released a movie that might make the box office weird? Anything? Hmm, I'm trying to uh, think. Oh, since he last released a movie. No. Yeah. yeah. No, I can't think of anything um, that would have made that difference. I, I mean, no, box, I office reporting, box office reporting is always <laughs> taking its perfect context into account. Um, but but it, it was, the reaction seems sort of quizzical and muted. It, it was it, not necessarily a richer text than Get Out or Us, but I think was a little bit more opaque about what it was doing in some respects. Um, and it, it, but in a very quick period of time, it seemed like people all sort of engaged with the movie on their own terms and found different and satisfying things to take away from it. And I think that's of, of all the films we talk about one whose reputation 
I mean, maybe it'll be true of other movies we talk about this tonight. I don't know. But like its reputation is going to go up and up and up until it seems sort of like an unqualified masterpiece in years to come. Yeah, I'm buying I'm buying buying in on Nope. Buying buy, buy, buy some land in <laughs> yeah. the arid uh, mountains outside of Los Angeles. <laughs> uh, well, I want to I want to jump in, uh, David, on, on your thought there, because I put Nope as my number 10 while still feeling like I don't know if Nope is an entirely successful film, in my opinion, uh, on this podcast. We, we talked about it at length and people should go listen to that. But um, it I, I don't think it totally coheres dramatically. I'm not sure. Like the character arcs really gripped me in that way. But Nope is my number 10 because, as you said or alluded to, like I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was just, I wanted to live in Nope for a while. I wanted to play all the games. I wanted to look at all the clues. I don't know if it's, it's kind of pejorative at this point to call something like a mystery box. But I feel like, I mean, in the J.J. Abrams sense, I feel like Jordan Peele's made something more complicated than that. Maybe it's the the box from Glass Onion or something. It's just it has lots of of puzzles and lots of ideas and lots of thought put into every bit of it that even while I left the theater thinking, like, I don't know if this really struck me as deeply as Get Out or Us, I I felt that all all the images were were striking and all of the ideas uh, from the the shoe that was standing up to Steven Yeun's character and his whole it felt like watching a video essay at times. There's just so many thoughts I mean, about Hollywood you mean and that as a compliment. I, I know, I will, but oh my god! Yeah, I will no, say I, I in the process of in the process of cutting together the video that I do every year, which is if you're listening to this and you give a shit about that, it's coming next week. This is whatever. I don't care what the movies are that are on it. That's not the point. No spoilers. But um, the cutting that movie together and being sort of, sort of not cutting it together, but sort of cutting it apart, really, and just sort of playing with its various elements and seeing all the visual motifs. Yeah, exactly what Patches is saying. It was designed for that sort of reaction culture. But it's been so fun to just make little parallels between the balloons floating up um, when Steven Yeun's character is a kid versus the balloon of Steven Yeun <laughs> sort of floating up into Jean Jacket at the end. <laughs> and and the way that Kiki Palmer's character smokes versus the way that Jean Jacket smokes. I mean, there are all sorts of little things, some of them uh, uh-huh. more sort of complicated than others but all of them really well thought out yeah and, and I, I had a very good conversation with this guy casper kelly earlier this year the guy who did too many cooks he made a horror movie called the fireplace uh that is actually very good it's on hbo max didn't make my list or anything uh he hid it behind it a yule log on adult swim um much like too many cooks was hidden uh late night on adult swim um but it's actually it's one a really of those fun, ideas that's like yeah. so cool that i don't even necessarily need to see the movie because i just am so in <laughs> the love movie turns the out to be fun how- i will say that I'm sure it does, but like it's just such a great idea. Anyway, but I think I think Casper in that conversation we were talking about, you know, his comedic sensibilities and and what escalation and what an improv. He's an improver at at heart, and I think Peel is kind of the same way. Like improvisation can lead comedy can lead to escalation. These kind of echoes that I'm starting to see more. I I feel like Peel is a very successful storyteller, director, horror spinner because he is a comedian and i feel like all these connections come oh, yeah. from from comedy and kind of working out jokes and punchlines and i think nope is a very successful joke on a lot of levels and uh I, i'll be interested to watch it many many times in the years to come i mean to your but point. the the success i mean i think that's true that his skills as a comedian are always really on display in his horror films but improv i mean i i think it's funny that you say that because i was just 
saying about how intricately plotted the film is and how well thought out and how, you know, all the, the various rhymes that are in the movie and the storytelling uh, and how it all sort of reflects each other all the way down. Both these things could be true. It's just, I think, a testament to Peel's talent as a filmmaker that he's able to peel appeal to, you know, yeah. both that that sort of like galaxy brain and also like in the moment off the cuff energy at the same time. Well, I think that's the the the, the genius of casting for him too. like getting Daniel Kaluuya, getting Kiki Palmer, getting Steven Yeun, like getting these top tier actors. I feel like Daniel Kaluuya does a lot with not so much in, in Nope, as far as the characters are concerned. The, and the and best eye actor in the world. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and and Peel should never lose him. Well, I also liked it for the reasons you guys said. Fun to talk about. Think the first part's boring, but it wasn't on this list at all until I talked to more people about it and then watched it a second and third time. Wow. So it's like those movies sort of uh, get your hooks in you, and that's why it ends up on the list, even if it's not further up the list with other movies that I like a little bit more. Speaking of, that means we can head to number nines uh let's start again with katie katie what was your number nine film of 2022 uh another movie that i watched with charlie but not mostly chosen on his merits it's uh marcel lachelle with shoes on a movie that also snuck up on me much like you guys were talking about nope where i watched it i was familiar with the web short obviously and i was like this is a charming movie a surprisingly great voice performance from Isabella Rossellini, which is, of course, not a small thing. Um, but it stuck with me. And it's really like laser sharp sadness and lines that kind of get directly at the marrow of human existence, while also having like really funny visual gags of a shell like wandering around a house and a tennis ball. It's incredible to me that they made this movie, like really plotted it out and probably made some of it before the pandemic because it's so much about like loneliness and being left behind and being kind of in your own world that you've created and losing track of reality outside it. Um, and I think the trailers made it seem like Marcel goes on a wild adventure, but it's about so much less than that in this really beautiful way. Um, Jenny Slate obviously is this standout performance as this voice that's like silly and cutesy, but has a lot of depth to it. She's, Marcel sings several songs, which did make my list of the uh, musical moments of the year um, if, in a worthy way. Um, and yeah, it just kind of has like sat in my little like, heart somewhere um we got sent an Ed marcel shell from a24 and i like just seeing him sitting in our potted plants um yeah it was a, what it was your kids a, what do your kids think of it uh charlie really liked it i think charlie got to the end and didn't understand it that didn't mean that he didn't like it i don't think sam who's just turned four really got much of it at all um because i think the like pr like it's not just that like spoiler alert like the grandma shell dies but like what the like feelings that it evokes are. I think it's really complex and not just for a kid's movie, but I think for people in general about like loneliness, but excitement, but like wanting a community, but wanting to be independent. And then there's like the side story about the um, filmmaker character that I guess by Dean Fleischer camp, the director of the movie and like his life and what he's left behind to make the movie. It's, it's so quiet. Um, but I think it can go over a lot of heads, including kids, um, but also kind of it embraces you in, too. It's not something that's hard to to enjoy on a more regular level. Did Charlie understand the greatest Wayne Gretzky joke I've ever seen? In film? <laughs> Somehow we have not. Uh, we haven't taken him to a Carolina Hurricanes game, which I know. Um, I don't know. Maybe you're proud of us because I know you hate the Hurricanes. The Rangers so. are playing the Carolina Hurricanes literally as we speak. Carolina's wow. won 11 games in a row. And yet the Rangers with six minutes left have a four to three lead. 
Hopefully wow. I will not listen back on this and uh, regret, you know, not stopping in time. <laughs> anyway, carry on. Good movie. Marcella Shell with shoes on. I can't believe they turned a cute short from 2010 into a really good movie. Yeah, it is very cute. It is in the animated category this year's this year's Academy Awards after being reviewed. Uh, it's it's pretty great. It's pretty great. It's cute, soft, gentle, soft motion, stop motion. Uh, speaking of the complete opposite of that, David, <laughs> what was your number nine pick? You got to tell me, man. I, I honestly, it was a Give little a film about body modification and organs. Oh. I believe. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, actually, I mean, you know, we don't. <laughs> I don't want to take up too much time here. I wrote about this at length at uh, uh, Can in May, um, but I don't think Crimes of the Future by David Cronenberg is maybe as far removed from Marcel the Shell, the Shell with Steve yeah. as you might expect. Was Marcel the Shell with shoes on, I should say. Uh, nothing but respect for Marcel. Um, it just in the way that, uh, well, it's about, you know, both are sort of about decay uh, in their own ways. <laughs> about, um, you know, finding <laughs> new ways for the flesh to go on. Um, new shells, if you will, for your ghosts or or whatever it is, the little Marcel-like mollusks live inside. Um but I also, what I mostly responded to from Cronenberg's latest, seemed a very sedate, uh, funereal, sort of classically late work, is how hopeful I found it, how optimistic of the future, even though it's about, you know, Viggo Mortensen, this, this sort of dystopian, not dystopian, not at all dystopian, this sort of post-apocalyptic future where people are evolving rapidly in strange ways and surgery, as they say, has become the new sex. And uh, um, it... it, it yeah, I mean, I if you haven't seen the movie, I feel like a lot of people didn't. Um, all the Cronenberg heads made it a, made a point of it, but I think the rest of the world, uh, it was too much of a curio. But um, there were so many reports before premiere that it was going to be like the grossest thing in the world, and there were all these walkouts and so on. And like, I, I don't know, there's like a scene or two of of intense body modification. It's all very clearly done with with CGI and uh, practical effects, and um, it all looks so artistically done that I was hard pressed to find any of it disgusting. And it's all done in the spirit of sort of making these incredible new things with the flesh. It's part of the course, you know, David Cronenberg, unless we're talking about like, you know, parts of the fly and whatnot. Um, there is a certain beauty to how he is manipulating the flesh. And uh, I just, I found it even, you know, for the journey that Vigo Karen and Vigo Morton's character goes on, uh, which is not end in a traditionally happy place. Um, I found it a very, very hopeful movie about that starts with climate change and those overtones that sort of imagines a new, uh, more sustainable in its own way, if slightly different than we would want for ourselves or expect for a kind of future. It's a theme that I saw in a number of movies this year. Films like Women Talking, I think, are part of that conversation, but uh, I thought none of them did them more successfully than Crimes of the Future. It's great. Great Howard score and Shore score, too. Ooh, I need to narrow down my list of 2022 scores maybe i'll check that out dave did you see that uh, one that feels like something you might seek out i i haven't seen it i have it in my box of uh, it's, it's in the neon box i believe mm -hmm. this year sure is uh but have not gotten around to it because uh java's not really into the the the, the body stuff can't imagine why uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, I had to watch Bones and All by myself, and I imagine I'm going to have to watch Crimes of the Future by myself, but I want to make time for it, for sure. I think it's streaming on Hulu, too, if people want to find it. 
Ooh, oh, I nice. could do that on a private device on a phone. <laughs> like, like Crimes of the Future was meant to be seen. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, that, that red uh, patches, you got a different type <laughs> in, in your number nine. Spot. I do. I picked Turning Red, a movie that was unceremoniously dumped on Disney Plus earlier this year. Probably should have played. Wasn't it the theaters. only one. Remember Lightyear? No. And that played in theaters. theaters. Fuck that movie. Um, I almost picked, uh, if I were going to be, I don't know, more prestigious, more, I would have picked Inuo, the new Masaki Uasa film. Did you see that one, Dave? Oh, that movie fucking Inuo. rules, though. Yeah, yeah it's rules. really good. It's really, really good. <laughs> I mean, talk um, about some great musical sequences. I was about to say, I, I'm probably neck and neck with turning red for my unofficial animated slot which is not official in any other year besides this one. Um, but I, I don't know. I, this whole list, I think you'll find I'm, I'm, I'm prioritizing joy. I'm prioritizing um, <laughs> um, characters who are living life um, and, and undergoing maybe occasionally minor, minor kerfuffles in their life. And I was just so pleased to see Pixar do a movie that maybe had smaller stakes, even if this movie ends with a giant kaiju fight in an arena um i adored domi she's kind of semi-autobiographical look back at life in in canada and my this 13 year old being extremely a 13 year old definitely may May. sorry may uh it's been a while since i've seen it um but yeah the 2002 nostalgia probably got me a little bit there too the boy band tracks by Billy Eilish and what's her brother's name? Um, Phineas. They, Phineas. Not, not shortlisted for I the know. Oscar original song, which is what crazy. Is that? that song is so <laughs> they good. They hit hard. Uh, Four I mean, Town that, that category is famously just out to lunch. Although, you know, yeah. they did win the Oscar for the Bond song, which they absolutely deserve to. So maybe they were just taking a that cooler song stunk. this year. You're crazy, well, man. You're that, song, that song stunk. Um, I mean, uh, you guys are maniacs. The big, the big thing for me, I'm, I'm haunted by some podcasts that we had where David just said that all CG animation is garbage, um, and I just don't agree anymore. Um, certainly, there are there are strains of the CG animation that look awful, but I feel and I'm I'm pleased to see Pixar giving creators like Domi Shi control of, of what their movies look like and that they can feel bubbly in this movie or they can feel, I know next year or <laughs> next year it's 2023 already. Mm-hmm. We're going to get this movie elemental from Pixar that has this uh, obviously inspired by Spider-Verse on some level. Um, so, so many movies are, uh, but like I, I just love all the hybrid animation. I, I, that's I think that probably I, misappropriates the, uh, the the timeline it takes to make a Pixar movie. To think that Elemental was heavily inspired by Spider-Verse. Are you kidding? But, I mean, every. I mean, this is a very uh, common. I'm not kidding. Elemental looks like the. How long ago do you think? It looks like the short that guy made. How long ago do you think Spider-Verse? I mean, Spider-Verse was a long time ago now. Um, many, many, many. I, mean, I, I think yeah, many, Peter many, Sohn many, has probably many, been cooking uh, Elemental up for, many, uh, many for a very long time. But talk about the impact the point, of Spider-Verse. You are wrong. I sir. mean, that, that's um, completely I also, irrelevant. I would also uh, <laughs> recommend seeing Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, a late game, almost making my list. So fucking good. Can't believe the Puss in Boots sequel. It goes so hard with the animation. It looks really good, too. I yeah. can't believe it. Um, I couldn't believe it. Anyway, but I'm giving Turning Red the props this year. I just was really touched by the the family story and 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 the animation. I thought it was quite vivid and, and it really knocked me out even at home on Disney Plus. So there you go. 
It's certainly, certainly not the worst looking CGI animated movie I've ever seen, but it does not have a does not in that department at least does not have much on like the Lego movies or um, on Mitchell's versus the machines, which is very close to making my list last year, despite being a uh, CGI animated movie. I guess what wow. the lies and aspersions that Matt Patch is we casting about my character are false. We, we can <laughs> find this quote. You hate CG animated movies. I do. Oh, I hate it. I really, I really, uh, I hate it for the most part. But it doesn't mean that some of the movies that people make with it are not wonderful. I like Turning Red fine. I, my hot take is that I think the actress who plays the girl is like kind of grating. I didn't really love that voice performance at all. Even as Sandra Oh was like tearing it up playing her mom. And I I think that might have been a barrier for me in liking this movie a lot, but not wanting to return to it all that often. Although my kids have. It's been on it more than a couple times. Not, not want to returning red? Returning red. But then returning I just want to listen to that song over and over again. So, <laughs> jam. Well, for my number nine pick, uh, this was sort of the one that I didn't figure out until absolutely last because I knew what I wanted to have at eight and I knew what I wanted to have at ten. Uh, so this one's going to one that I've had a lot of fun with. It's another one I've watched thrice uh, since it's existed. Uh, once in theaters, which was super fun. But it's uh, Helena Rain's Bodies, Bodies, Bodies uh, for A24. Uh, it is a story that becomes a mystery about who murdered Pete Davidson. So that's already, we're off to a good start. Uh, it has a very charming Lee Pace in it. Again, a really good start, but the rest of the cast is uh, filled out by some fantastic young women. They're all at a house for a hurricane party. Uh, this party cuts them off from the outside world just as Pete Davidson ends up dead, so they have to discover uh, with their improvised lighting uh, in a house that uh, none of them live in uh, who exactly is out there killing people. He's not the the last body, but he is the first uh, titular body. Uh, so I, yeah, I really like this as a thriller that speaks to a certain generation that is slightly below mine, but maybe not pure Gen Z, something that's in the middle. Uh, but there's something in the third act that really always, or I guess second act, uh, that really gets me where they're having a showdown and trying to suss out who the killer is. Uh, and they start arguing through, uh, like, virtue signaling each other about how uh, seriously they should take people's uh, bipolar personality disorder or penchant for spending a lot of time on podcasts that nobody listens to. It really, it really <laughs> resonated with me, and <laughs> I enjoy it, and I enjoy sharing it with people uh, who maybe missed it thinking it was a slightly more party-centric movie than it is and it's felt 94 minutes though i say give it a give it a try i watched so many over three hour movies this year uh that just ended up being a lot less enjoyable than bodies 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 i really like the uh, little spin you put on penchant there that was that was penchant. nice yes thank you uh, <laughs> bodies bodies how, bodies. bodies how scary is it Not um i don't think it's like that scary no it's more of a uh comedy that involves some blood and then drama before it becomes a comedy again okay but i All wouldn't right. i wouldn't be like worried about like it's not a jump scare movie it's not an extreme gore movie there's not you know a, it's not like a black christmas there's been a serial killer in the attic the whole time it, it has something it's trying to say and i think it lands that um 
at the end. But, you know, it runs the risk of like having a cast that's that's too on point, that's like too hot right now. Like every person is sort of on the cusp of blowing up and is is uh um you know well known in certain Instagram circles and whatnot. I mean you're Rachel Sennett's and you're uh Maria Bakalova's and then uh, mm-hmm. my, my Hala uh, Harold from uh, My Beloved Industry. Uh, they're all wonderful in the movie. Um, Amanda Stenberg is the lead and, and Lee Pace is like, I mean, Pete Davidson speaks for himself and and they have fun, I think, subverting his image. And they do the same is true, I think, of Lee Pace's character, who is like comically attractive. And uh, they play off that in kind of fun ways. And his his death scene, spoiler alert, uh, is really some excellent uh, horror co- slasher comedy. Um, it's just, yeah, really well done. I agree with everything Dave said. Is this the movie that Amanda Stenberg got in that fight with that TikTok yeah. critic about? Yeah. Uh, that whole thing I was, yep. I'm mostly too old to understand. Okay, just check. Yeah, I wanna, after we watched it, Java was like, I was expecting more boobs given the controversy uh, because there was some <laughs> sort of review about like shoving boobs in my face. And it, it, that's not really no, the, it. Again, though. You know, the controversy really... was that, well, we don't need to get into that, but the, <laughs> it's nothing to do with the actual quantity of, of boobage in this movie. Um, uh, I, I do really like uh, how it ends up being lit a lot through uh, cell phones and glow sticks and whatnot as we move on. Uh, I think it really also helps with the geography of what we're trying to find out. Anyway, Bodies, 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 check it out. I don't know if a lot of people did. I keep showing it to people who have never heard of it before, so I'm trying to do that for you now. Moving on! I I feel like anyone who... Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. ahead. I was just gonna say, I feel like all the people who are gonna seek out a movie because it has the Rachel Sennett's and Lee Pace's and Pete Davidson's of the world, then it all did seek it out and saw it, but uh, I, I think know. it deserves maybe, a wider Maybe audience. share it you with somebody. Are, what are you That's... talking about? <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, it, well, it was going to a particularly Gen Z audience that's very online, and it found them, and it deserves to, and it's a fun commentary on them, and I hope that we it are finds a wider audience. Millennials, yeah, my the friend, movie made $13 million. Dollars. You think a lot of people saw this yeah. movie? David, come on. Wait, that's... What are you That's trying to say? Lot. Now I'm confused. Yeah, That's that a feels lot. like a good number. That's like a really good number. <laughs> um, anyway, we're talking up our own buttholes. Let's go to the next movie. Yeah, let's move on to our number eight. This is where Katie has slammed the jean jacket with Nope. <laughs> yeah, Nope. What a great movie. I didn't see it for... Did, we talk, did you guys talk about it on the podcast like a week that I was gone maybe? Because... When it came out in the summer, I was like traveling and just like all over the place. It took me forever to catch up with it. I watched it on Peacock, which I, well, I don't know. If you watch it on Peacock with a proper television, it's fine. I watched it on my very shitty TV and could not see some of the night scenes, which I know is not how it was made because um, we ran a story. Yeah, well, I mean, like I figured out that it was my TV's fault, not the movie's fault. And then I read an article about cinematography and how they like invented a way of filming at night to capture it that beautifully. Um, And then like you guys said, it stuck with me and I kept thinking about it. And I, I, knowing how like tight and perfectly like all the dominoes falling get out is I've I've watched all the Jordan Peele movies since being like, well, I don't like, I don't know where this is going. Like, I don't feel it falling into place, but movies like that after the fact I can kind of sit with and think about, um, also, it's a child actor abolitionist movie, and I can't help but uh, root for it for that. Uh, I don't cannot think of a movie that has gone as hard <laughs> on the notion that children and animals do not belong on movie sets. And thank you, Jordan Peele, for uh, continuing the crusade. It's such a great movie. It looks so 
so beautiful and it's not getting cinematography Oscar nomination, I think, which blows. Yeah. Also, maybe the only movie I've ever seen where an IMAX camera is a plot point in addition yeah. to being one of the tools <laughs> they used to, to make it. Yeah. Oh, my you God. It. Yes, that guy. <laughs> I like film reel and like changing the, the reel in the black bag out in the desert. Oh, so good. Where were the Where were the last uh, generations? I was to have to that say that, game, that triggered me. I was not happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> Made my hands sweat. Loading, loading which is the worst is not thing to happen. Plan. I don't think the stakes yeah. were as high for you whenever you did that as uh, it was to capture Jean hey, you, you don't. You don't Probably know what not. films were like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, moving on to another movie that I have didn't get to see because I did not subscribe to Mubi this past week. David, what do you have on number? Oh, you, that's right. You need me to remind you. David. I, a, I figured it out. Romance <laughs> mystery. <laughs> the one on movie. Uh, uh, yeah, but it's actually, you know, it's talking movie movies. This is one that you had, you living in Colorado, particularly not the Royal U, living in Denver, mm. had ample opportunity to go to your local theater and see because movie did an elaborate theatrical release for it. Uh, and you just fucked it up. Even though I did, I missed. Eighth, I missed there was something else going year. on. I had to go uh, see like Bardo in a theater or some dumb shit like that. Man, you were you were fucking it up even worse than I feared. You were fucking it up. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean Park Chan Wook. I want to say that he doesn't miss. Uh, that's not entirely true. I mean sometimes he has like a a bunt instead of just like a grand slam home run. That's about as as close to a miss as he's come. Uh, you know, any any of you out there who bothered to import, I'm not a cyborg, but that's okay. Or watched. Uh, his recent television show with uh, Florence Pugh. And I'm sad that he's getting back into television with Robert Downey Jr. just because his particular talents, which are so ornate and puzzle box, puzzle box like and operatic, don't seem well suited for the schedule of making television so much as they do uh, a movie like Decision to Leave, which is, for my money, like the most romantic movie of the year, which is a strange thing to say about a police procedural, but is a very, very not at all strange thing to say about a Park Chan Wook movie whose films like Lady Vengeance and Thirst and Stoker are all these dark, unconventional romances in their own way. And even though this is just sort of a, it could have been directed and, and shot like an episode of Law and Order, uh, you know, it turns out that how a story is, 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 is as important as, uh, or how it's, how it's told this, <laughs> I'm so fucking tired. <laughs> how it's told is kind of important when it comes to filmmaking. It turns out. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a simple, I don't know if uh, a lot of people out there saw it. I don't know. can't remember if we talked about it on the podcast, the story about a detective who falls in love is infatuated with, uh, the suspect of a murder. He's investigating a woman who is accused of pushing her husband off of a, Cliff-like abutment uh, in Korea. Um, She is played by Tang Wei of Lust Caution fame, uh, continues to crush it. Um, And it sort of becomes this sort of codependent love story about how these two people are dancing around each other. Guilt and innocence become less and less relevant and becomes more about um, how their feelings for one another are going to sort of live on independently of any sort of relationship that they might have and how it can be more valuable uh, to have somebody in your mind in, in a way uh, than it can to be with them. Sometimes it's more possible uh, as we see in one of the most affecting endings of the year and that Park Chan-wook who has come up with a few doozies in this day has ever orchestrated. Uh, but this movie fucking rips. Uh, it's, it's Hitchcockian, but it's also, um, you know, 
uniquely Park Chan-wook. Um, and I miss him. It's been six years since The Handmaiden. And I'm afraid there's going to be another six more because he's making a TV show with Robert Downey Jr. Uh, and maybe that'll be great. But um, he, the guy is in his, what, mid-60s at this point. So uh, hopefully he'll make another one of these. He's 59. 59. Isn't it time um, to see someone make Robert Downey Jr. act again? Like, that's, that's intriguing. I mean, he's Robert Downey Jr. is going to be a gonna be an co-star in the show. He's going to be an Oppenheimer. Um, but, yeah. I mean, there's really just no one who cooks like Park Chan-wook. And uh, I, every one of his movies is an event for gonna me. Call and him Park Chan-cook? No, Park Chan-cook. Uh, uh, and this was right. no exception. No exception. <laughs> uh, fucking rules. And it is on movie. Don the movie. Uh, I gotta see it. It's on my list. I'm sorry. I feel bad that I haven't seen it yet. I mean, at this point, I should just pay I for the movie. I don't. Bad. I don't know why I didn't. Movie is also. I mean, they are not paying us on like every other podcast that I've ever listened to. But uh, <laughs> movie is an incredible, incredible streaming service, and their library now that they don't just have the film of the day, but also allow you access to their their library is. Really, only uh, challenged by the Criterion uh, Criterion Corn. What's it called? <laughs> Criterion, Criterion Collection. Um, <laughs> I have a channel. Who follows me on social media and knows yeah. that I've been sleeping in an inflatable pool raft with a three-year-old. So I'm pretty out of it. But uh, movie rules. They should pay us just for saying that, or just in general. They should. <laughs> Patches as what I think he would describe as one of his first chaos picks here. What? Uh, <laughs> this is not on everybody's list. I don't. This is this is unique to your list. I'm so afraid and embarrassed in advance. <laughs> nobody else put Adam. Congratulations. Nobody else put Fletch. Fletch. <laughs> Why didn't anybody oh. put Fletch on their list? That's my Marcia Gay Harden. No, much less embarrassing, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Did anyone see Confess Fletch first off? I saw I saw half of it, but mostly Come what on. I saw were people on my Twitter timeline saying all year how wonderful this movie is, and I believe them because it's got. The two leads of Mad Men, or two of the leads of Mad Men. It's got Greg Matola. He's made some good shit. Tell tell us why it's so great. Yeah, I mean, this movie, somewhat notoriously, I suppose, had a bungled release. Came and went from theaters, wound up on Showtime pretty quickly. Wait, isn't it an Amazon movie? Is it not on Amazon? No, no. This was a Miramax movie. Whatever that means. I believe now. it was a Paramount Plus release or no. HBO Max, one of the two. No, it went on Showtime. Paramount. I'm telling you, it, it was weird. No, it's all I, weird. I think it's, all, I think it's also no. on Paramount Plus. Watch it on Plus, Hulu. No, it, it, I think it Viacom no, is on Showtime and Paramount Plus. That's all I'm saying. Go watch this very, very funny movie that finally figures out what to do with I admire your John commitment Hamm. to being objectively wrong about something in every one of the ten movies that you're listening but go on I am what uh, it, it was on Showtime I don't have to tell you I watched it on Hulu via Showtime you're all fucking wrong I history will prove it me right it is on Showtime I'm just saying it didn't prove Thank me go on you. go on now please confess already Jesus Christ confess Fletch <laughs> okay. uh, yeah they spent years and years and years trying to make another Fletch movie. I remember, God, in like the Ain't It Cool News days, reading about Kevin Smith trying to make a Fletch mm. movie with like Ryan Reynolds or something, or Zach Braff was going to play Jason, Fletch. Jason Lee. Jason Lee. Yeah, that Kevin makes more Smith. sense. You, can, Kevin you Smith can see connection. how that works. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just so many iterations of, of this movie that never came to pass. And thank God that they didn't, because I think Greg Matola of uh super bad 
Day Trippers fame. Adventureland. Uh, Paul. Remember Paul? Adventureland. Um, Everyone loves Paul. People love that wacky smoking alien. Um, yeah, he's the perfect fit for this kind of droll comedy. What a pleasure it is to see just a very funny joke filled movie um that has low stakes i mean i was not a big fan of glass onion this year i much prefer the the mystery comedic sleuthing of uh john ham's fletch investigative ex investigative reporter erwin m fletch fletcher uh and and this is just like the the plot is so convoluted it has to do with italian art and the mob and fletch is in Boston and there's a murder committed in his Airbnb um, and he gets all wrapped up in this saga and it is all about seeing where John Hamm goes next playing this just kind of perfect balance of maybe a little smarmy but he is really sharp and there's a bunch of weirdo characters trailing him and he needs to get information and you mentioned David that uh, there's two Mad Men uh, vets in this John Slattery plays his old newspaper partner and they just bat dialogue around like old friends and it's a it's just a good time expertly crafted and giving everybody who shows up just the perfect scene annie mumolo kind of steals this movie playing a wacky neighbor of the murdered person and ham is watching her trying to cook dinner like a maniac uh trying to describe what's funny about all this is is pointless as it is with all comedies <laughs> i would just say confess fletch total surprise a, a movie i would i would I don't know. Yeah, I'll go back and watch Confess Fletch if I'm if I'm feeling down. It's just put a smile Confless on my face. Fetch. You're, I can't catch okay, a break. Patches, the real you. question Fuck here off. is Marsha Gay Harden in Confess in Confess Fletch or Isabella Rossellini in Marcel the Cell the Shell for I haven't <laughs> seen Marcel yet. Alone in Marcel. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, someone Fuck you, you can't speak either. <laughs> you old man. Move on. <laughs> Oh, wait, I have a question, though. I've never seen the Chevy Chase Fletch. Is plural? Are there more than one Chevy there Chase are. Fletch? There, I've, there is. I have Fletch, no attachment to those movies. Yeah. Am I, do I need do I. T- any knowledge of those at all? Okay, so I like I kind of have not tuned into this movie because people I said it was good. I was books. like, I don't know anything about original not, there's, Fletch. There's many books, and you'll see people talking about this movie and being like, they finally got Fletch right. I yes. think people are big fans of the Chevy Chase movies and always wondered if anyone could kind of strike that balance again of of being aloof but uh, having a kind of sexual chemistry with people uh that that he kind of got in that original 85 fletch movie i don't know the books very well either all i know is that this is the part ham has waited for like his whole career that no one can make him funny enough or no one can give him a dramatic part that makes sense because he's a character actor type or want to be a lace and i i don't know i just think this is they nailed this they nailed this this is the perfect thing i if it, it made zero dollars and as we could say as we said at the top of this segment no one knows where to find it apparently who knows where it's streaming <laughs> um so i'm not sure we'll get the many fletch sequels we deserve but i can only hope confess Fletch making its only appearance on this episode, but it is here. Matt Love spoke it for variety. <laughs> I also have another choice for variety, and this is another one that I couldn't stop thinking about uh, and trying to get people to watch. Uh, this is a Barbarian. It's written and directed by Zach Kreger. It is a horror movie that restarts itself. I'm going to say at least two different times as it's unwinding its plot. It apparently first stars just Georgina Campbell and Bill Skarsgård, then expands to include Justin Long in probably 
I'm going to say in contention for my favorite character he's ever played on anything. Uh, and then spirals into depravity as uh, it talks about uh, the plight of rundown neighborhoods uh, outside of Detroit and other things. But that's at least what it's about on its surface. Uh, I don't need to say much more because I think Barbarian is still best approached not knowing uh, anything or knowing as little as possible. And I don't want to stumble over that for you. But th this is my last, I think, really hardcore genre thing I wanted to get on my list just because uh, I went into it expecting nothing, saw it in the theater, came out of the theater and was like, holy shit, I, I need everybody to see Barbarian so we could talk about it. And have not had great success, except in my yeah. uh, personal life. With I don't people know if we, that we talked about to it do things. on this podcast. At, at no, we all. did. We, we talked about it extensively on this podcast. Oh, maybe I was. Uh, I'm trying to find the episode, but the website's not loading. So oh, that's no. not. Yeah, yeah fun not thing great. that I've uh, figured out. I got to fix the website for this episode goes up, <laughs> but don't worry about it. Great. By the time you hear this, you'll be able to find it in the archives. No, because most of my knowledge of this movie comes from you guys talking about it and not spoiling it. I don't think like I. Good for us. We did a good job. We so. did it. Joe. Yeah, the, yeah we the, did it. Yeah, the the real pleasure comes from the not knowing in Barbarian. I will say once the once the pieces are sort of fully in place, I think it kind of ends on a whimper. But uh, the the what the fuck is actually happening and how is this all going to come together is a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I do think it has a, at least one more good rewatch in it once you know what the fuck's happening, just to see how the construction's working. But to sort of allude back to what Matt was saying about like improv people can do horror if you, it resets <laughs> yeah. itself enough it also um, i mean the one thing that's undeniably true and this was also true of dave franco's little scene directorial debut the rental uh part of a growing subgenre of movies that will genuinely freak you out the next time you're in an airbnb Ugh. katie i yeah. can't believe you haven't seen barbarian yet you love movies about motherhood what wow. i didn't know that yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah, don't love movies about be. creepy things in basements. I know enough that. about Barbarian to know that that's an aspect in it. Uh, all right, that brings us to our number sevens. We're moving right along at a clip. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna let Katie uh, kick it off again because we have all picked different number seven movies. Uh, there's this little movie called Avatar: The Way of Water. Have you heard of it? It's it's in a, it's playing a lot of places right now. I feel like I should have ranked this higher as I'm looking at it on my list. Like, did I really like all these other movies more than Avatar? I've seen it twice now. I took Charlie to see it a second time. Had a fucking amazing time. Both of them. You're I think, making us get through this episode fast so that you can get to your uh, Pandora you support meeting. Of, uh, no, so you yeah, your... Where I like feel bad that I can't live there. I exactly. mean, if you're telling me you wouldn't rather be floating in the ocean with a Tolkien right now, I, you're lying. Because Yeah, but the issue with movie, that is that I wouldn't be able to breathe. Which, uh, you uh, could, yeah, get one of those little masks maybe, like maybe very guy. sympathetic towards Spider. He has to spend his entire life wearing a fucking know, Tom Cruise Halo a jump mask. I mean, he kind of sucks, so I don't know. Spider. Wow. Look, um, second viewing really made me come around on Spider. Um, it's, I think, a, a better than the original Avatar on basically every level. It looks amazing. The story is so, like rich and thorough and making it about teenagers turns out to have been a great idea which like i never could have predicted i cared so much about this family could not tell the two older sons apart and yet their emotional arc still got me at the end of it 
Um, and then at the end, they are on a big sinking boat. And as we all know, anytime James Cameron makes a movie on a big sinking boat, uh, shit's about to get real. I loved it. I'm probably I, I probably won't see it in theaters again. My time is limited, but um, I'm just so gratified watching it be a hit. My cousin went to see it and like she like is just a normal person who actually went to see it. Obviously, lots of people are. But I feel like as we get older, we know a few people who go to the movies. People are actually bothering to see this. Um, Avatar, my, Way of Water. My extremely pregnant wife, uh, shout out to Elisa, went to see Avatar, colon, The Way of Water with a friend of the show, David Sims and his wife. Uh, while I stayed with Asa the other night because she had to experience Pandora for herself. Of course. Uh, and she, uh, I had no idea what she was going to think of it. We had just rewatched Avatar her first time a few weeks ago, and I think we're both kind of underwhelmed. Uh, you know, we had talked about it on this podcast how that movie, uniquely among James Cameron's filmography, is lacking in, I think, some of the substance department. Um, but she, was she apparently cried her way through like an entire box of Kleenexes for Avatar The Way of Water <laughs> from the moment the Tolkien arrived and there oh my were the God. fucking uh, Pycon and the whales and the whale babies. I mean, oh yeah, the whale babies. Jesus Christ. I mean, talking about uh, themes of motherhood, which are obviously resonating particularly strongly for Elisa right now. I think it really, I mean, um, we talk so much about how Avatar does not really connect emotionally, the first one. And we had talked in our review episode of Avatar The Way of Water that it made great strides in that department but elisa's reaction to this which was like completely overwhelmed i think was quite a testament to that yeah i cried a whole lot uh both times watching this including the second time sitting with my actual child on my lap being like but i just want to hold on to my kids and stick together <laughs> uh that's how you know it got you <laughs> Uh, all oh, right. Well, I think the, the, the real takeaway is that if you have four kids, even if you know some have adopted, some of them were uh, born, you know, to your family biologically. Uh, one of them can die, and it's okay. Yeah, if you lose one, you got you can find another <laughs> to replace them. I mean, that's how it works in the old days. Say, working the farm, you had, you had like ten kids. You had enough people to work the farm when one of them dies in a thresher. It makes sense. Not true in real life, but it is true in James Cameron's screenwriting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's going to be hard to connect these two. Uh, let's see. At one point, a character in David's number seven movie does put on iridescent face paint while destroying a loved stuffed animal. But otherwise, it has nothing in common with Avatar The Way of the Water, as far as I could tell. David, what do we need to know about We Are All Going to the World's Fair? Uh, more than I could tell you. Although I will say that uh, trauma to beloved stuffed childhood stuffed animals does uh, hit deep for me. Uh, and so maybe that's one of the many reasons why I loved Jane Schoenbrunn's directorial debut. Uh, we are going, we're all going to the World's Fair. One of, if not the best films I have ever seen uh, that in terms of how vividly and intimately and accurately it captures what it means to sort of find your identity on the Internet, which is something that I, I know semi firsthand, but not to the intimate degree that I think the next generation down from us does um, i feel that way a little bit more professionally in terms of, like the friend group that i found and less like the core of my identity uh which is part of what this movie is about um also about you know body dysmorphia um you know jane is trans and this movie is very much a um sort of grappling with her coming to terms with her sexuality um she said so explicitly uh, and i think that is all really beautifully expressed through the creepy pasta like body horror of the film uh, which is about you know uh, the, the, the kind of dysmorphia it finds uh, a 
really interesting ways of, of exploring um, through the language of creepypasta and these sort of online ho- slender man like hoax is the wrong word but these uh, these legends these these digital myths that bind people together uh, particularly the main character who's this girl named Casey played by Anna Cobb in her first leading role performance love the opening credits of a movie that that says uh, in uh, sort of scrawled out handwriting that explicitly the actress appearing in her first ever you know feature film role uh, which is cool um, uh, and she is incredible um, I ran into her at the Gothams uh, and was a little bit just sort of shell-shocked because it's just it's it's a hell of a debut and she's a very strong character and uh, then running into this particular character if you've seen the movie you know what I'm talking about in like a ball gown uh, at Cipriani's it's surreal um, but uh, yeah I think I think this it's just a movie that is much better experience than it is talked about. Um, and if you've ever had any sort of even tangential interest or, or understood the appeal of the dark haze or something like Slender Man or, or the back rooms or any of that shit, um, this movie traffics in that in really, really humanizing and emotionally uh, pliable ways that I think translated for me why some of those things have become social phenomenon and why some people uh, feel particularly drawn, not just to the creepypasta side of the internet, but in like, you know, that the corner, those corners of the internet altogether and how it catalyzes their identity. It's just a really, really, really well done film. And Jane's next film, I think is set to take some of these ideas. I don't really know too much about it, but uh, even further and on a much larger budget. And uh, I absolutely cannot wait to see it. And I have a question yeah. about this, similar to my Confess Flex question. As someone who didn't know what creepypasta was until they threw a big party, a virtual Sundance party for this movie uh, back at Sundance 2021, and I went to it and talked to Jane about it, even though I hadn't seen the movie yet. I don't know what a creepypasta is. Does this movie make sense to me? I think so. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, guns in my head ever want to be responsible for explaining to someone the ins and outs of creepypasta. I've understood it. You know, I, I, I it, it's sort of a catch-all for dark horror inflected online lore um i mean Slender i hate Man to say it for the third, the third time because he's going to appear yeah. behind me but slender man <laughs> is sort of the, the go-to uh synonymous creature with uh with creepy pasta it's it's blair witch i mean the blair witch is sort of a pre-digital sleepy pasta or digital in the way pre-internet sleepy pasta sleepy pasta holy fuck creepy pasta <laughs> um but uh um, Katie, I think uh, you would know, as they say famously of pornography, you will know creepypasta if you see it. Um, yeah, and I think that Googling it you and are... even seeing like, like Slender Band plus some other stuff that is just fine as creepypasta yeah. uh, is uh, scary. Don't like it. You are alive and online enough in this world to understand more just than the surface definitions of what creepypasta is or isn't uh, how this movie is sort of engaging in the internet. Like you may not frequent the particular channels sure. by which this movie goes down uh but i think you will understand that they exist and and uh why they continue to be so fertile for the kind of drama that we see in the film sure while we're diversifying patches has another pick that's not going to appear anywhere else on this list or is number seven movie first before i say this does anyone want to apologize to me because the only place you can stream Confess Fletch is Showtime. Does anyone no, want to patches, say sorry? No, one was... <laughs> All right. All right. Does anyone I want mean, to I apologize? Really I really hope I don't have to. Didn't it premiere I... on Paramount Plus? But it's not there anymore? And it did. 
No, it did not. Does anyone want to apologize? Now, this is the time. Take your ticket. If you if you want to keep living this lie, feel free. But just letting you know. Anyway, my number seven. What number are we on? Is it another streaming? Well, I guess it played in theaters, but we know that doesn't really matter for some of these movies because it's not true. Uh, Catherine called Birdie, an Amazon Studios original film. I thought this might make your list, Katie. Oh, well. It's a good movie. Yeah, um, I, I, it certainly was uh, in the running there. Did you read the book that Lena Dunham has adapted into a no, very, very No, apparently many film? women my age did, and I did not. Yeah, my wife. Historical my wife fiction did. was never, like, totally my thing. Oh, Unless well. it's, um, you know, American Boning and such. Oh, oh, sorry, I went in the wrong direction there. Um, Yeah. <laughs> Catherine called Birdie. I was not familiar with the book. As I said, my wife was. I know this is a cherished work of, of YA literature for, for many young women. Um, and I know that Lena Dunham made many changes to to the book. Uh, and they were embraced by people I knew who who really liked the, uh, liked the film. So I was excited to see it. Again, caught it on Amazon uh, with my lights turned off and my phone put down. And I was really sucked in. I think my big takeaway about this kind of medieval comedy written with, um, I don't know if I should say it's written with the Lena Dunham twang because Sharp Stick also came out this year and it feels like a dramatically different uh, type of, of movie. Uh, I feel like Lena here is, is, is trying to make a book that she cherishes into a, a very faithful movie. It uses a lot of, uh, like the, the character is journaling in the movie and we get a lot of that uh, uh, transposed into the cinematic storytelling here. But Catherine, this 14-year-old, this old girl who her parents want to marry off it's it's really about her coming of age story and i just my my big big takeaway here is that bella ramsey is the real fucking deal like just a totally mm. incredible mm. actress who has the comedy Interesting. chops who really why why I just I think that's uh, an interesting thought to have in January of 2023. Oh, yeah. Uh, OK, we're all about to see her blow people oh. away, too. In The Last of Us. Yes, <laughs> this is, this is true. She's on that one. She's about to be. <laughs> I mean, she kind of blew people away in Game of Thrones as, as a very young actress. Um, they I believe she may go by they pronouns. I should have looked that up before talking about this, but um, I will just default to they here. Uh, I think they're just she's so <laughs> They're so playful. They're they're so searing when it comes to the kind of stark reality. The the Bernie character is a prankster. Uh, she is is she loves her parents though. There's, it's such a love filled movie. I've I've understood that the changes from the book kind of redeem the parents a little bit. Played by Billy Piper and Andrew Scott. Um, again, just amazing actors in these very playful roles, having a, a blast, kind of bringing a modern sensibility to the medieval setting um but as played by bella ramsey i i was also really struck by you know when you know, a lot of this has to do with like having your first period and what what that means and what it's going to mean for her entire life and like what getting married off will mean for her entire life and and played by bella um i think they bring the gravity of that situation to this young woman um and i haven't really seen it done i haven't seen great ya on screen in a very, very long time. And I thought it was touching. And uh, by the end, when everyone's hugging, I'm just like, I want to feel that at the movies. And I, and I got to this year. It's great. Uh, uh, it's I just want to, 
it's such a good movie. I just, I also just want to say, in the spirit of uh, all the great men of our era, that rather than concede the objective fact that we have all succumbed to the Mandala effect uh, uh, in regards to uh, um, Mandala, Confe- Mandela effect, regards to Confess Black, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say that it, it, it definitely premiered on Paramount. Plus exclusively, and then was stranger on a train. Not stranger on a train. The lady vanishes. I oh my god! Say. Uh, so that so that history was rewritten. Wikipedia will not tell you otherwise. I will never admit defeat, even though Patches is clearly right, and I do not know what the fuck happened. It stop was. The seal, it David. was. We are going to stop the seal. We had the votes because <laughs> Paramount Pictures. It was released. It was a Miramax movie that was released through Paramount Pictures, uh, and now all these fucking write-in votes from Showtime are changing things. Um, also, the Rangers won, and uh, fucking when um, we're all doing great. This podcast should just keep this, going and going. And this, Why not? It's not going to be long enough. This this lead on the movie is excellent, and Patches is right about that too. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's so it's so winning and like it uses voiceover in a way that kind of makes you think the voiceover can be used in movies again because Birdie's voice is so valuable to it. And Bella Ramsey's performance is really carrying along. Also, Joe Alwyn, who like I haven't seen everything he's been in. Like I never saw Billy Lynn's uh, long halftime walk, but I've always kind of not gotten the deal with him. Uh, but he's really delightful as like the uncle that Birdie has a crush on. But like he's her uncle and, you know, is you know, older and this very sweet relationship between the two of them and one of the big changes that lena dunham made to the book is that like the end of the book i think is she gets married off like she success she does not successfully avoid marriage and part of it is that her father is kind of a, a brute in the book and andrew scott is playing a much more interesting version of that um, but lena dunham just like wanted to protect her character for a little bit longer which i find really I sweet yeah. And one thing this movie has in common with Confess Fletch, another movie on Patrick's <laughs> list, uh, is that it was really, really underserved by not having a proper theatrical release. Yes. I mean, there was a time not that long ago where this movie could have made serious bank by having a quiet platform release over the summer and gradually finding an audience of people who fell in love with it. Because everyone who saw this movie in the theater would. Uh, yeah. It is infectiously charming. It is so clever and funny and full of life. Uh, and Bella Ramsey is a star and it really sucks butt that this movie was dumped onto Amazon Prime and our world blows and film distribution is in the toilet and everyone should be ashamed of themselves. Patches is a secret theme of your list of movies that got totally shit on by having uh, streaming releases because you've had Turning uh, Red, Confess Fletch. No, we're we're going to be shifting gears soon. Sorry. That was the first time. But yeah, I, mean, I think that was a big theme of 2022 in general. It's just a lot of movies that really got done wrong by streaming. Bring back platforming. It works. <laughs> you should have. Someone should put Kimmy on their uh, list so we could talk about a movie that did well streaming. Long theatrical windows. Wait, I got a good Six months. Clear, it should clear, be, clear. You should go to a hotel clear and here. be like, holy, go, holy shit, I can pay $20 to watch Top Gun right back now? Up, Incredible. Back up. Back up. <laughs> clear the air. Clear the air. Clear the air. I think they're bringing back platforming with the Super Mario Brothers movie. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thanks. Wow! Great. Wow. On with the so, show. Wow! I earned that one. That for almost, you guys. I think that, failing with the yeah. Now stuff. we're back to we're even. even. Now Patches had a Patches had a lead. Patches had a lead, and he just fucking went all in. And went, went all bust. in on Super Mario. We yeah. <laughs> we're all back. He to knew. Zero. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm going to pick a movie that actually did get a theatrical run, although I don't think it performed like it was supposed to. It is. Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. We talked about this on our podcast a bit, and we will be talking about it a bit more as we go further up the list. 
but I was just uh, very surprised uh, in terms of like directors doing nostalgia movies based on their own life. Uh, the Fablemans is both manages to be uh, authentic without being sort of like opaquely weird and episodic without feeling like a chore. Uh, I think it managed to uh, slalom its way down the ski hill of possible uh, failings. And so it doesn't feel navel gazy or even specifically about Spielberg uh, when it doesn't need to. And then when it does, I think it really manages to sing. Yeah, it's another one of those movies where it's like I saw it, had a great time all the way through it. And uh, some scenes sort of towards the end about the overall reckoning, either about the power of movies or about what a family meant uh, to the main characters, uh, really solidified. And then I think one of the uh, best ending sequences of the year, uh, if if not ever, uh, because of a, a cameo that pops up that I really enjoyed. But we'll probably talk about it more. Hint, hint. It's the Fablemans. All nice, right, moving nice on. Concise. Oh, concise Dave is back. Yeah, Concise Dave is back. We're going to have to... We'll be, we'll be back if anybody has more to say about the Fablemans, but we're going to move on here to our number sixes. Uh, starting off, like we have been, with Katie Rich. Uh, David was talking earlier about Park Chan-wook as a filmmaker who doesn't miss and sometimes only bunts um, as opposed to making a masterpiece. I would argue James Gray is on that same level. Yeah. The man does not miss. Wow. Uh, I also feel like David and I have talked endlessly about Armageddon time. Uh, I guess, yeah, we must have like done a whole review segment of it because we've talked about it a lot. But it's another movie that has sat with me. I did get to revisit it. Um, it is not a nostalgia movie about someone's childhood. And I think that misconception has really dogged this movie unfairly, although it wouldn't be a James Gray movie if it got like Wait. weirdly shat on on its release and like failed in the Oscar race. Um, How is like it, it not a movie about oh, is nostalgia it's the key word nostalgia here? Okay. Yeah, nostalgia. It's not. It is a really brutal, unsparing look back at these people that James Gray mm. loved and cared about deeply, but who failed him and failed the society that they were living in. And it, uh, as it kind of comes to that conclusion through the eyes of this kid, uh, Paul Graff, based very closely on James Gray to the point that when he gives interviews, he just kind of talks about the characters as being his family members. Um, and it's not about him like learning the ways of the world or like learning how unfair or things the can ways be. of water. Or, well, I was you know, right if, there you, if, you, you, if, if you could send My him on a Tolkien for Fuck. a while, I know that those <laughs> composers of songs would treat him better than these um, Jewish parents who have uh, are children of the Holocaust. Uh, no, his grandfather's old. Anyway, like Jewish family who have come to America who understand that they've had to struggle for what uh, they have. Turns and out the not... Holocaust hasn't been the only time when the Jews have been No, I know. I had the timeline. No, I had the timeline wrong. Anthony well, like Anthony Hop, but like someone comes from the like the ants are talking about the Holocaust because there's a moment where like uh, Paul is like laughing about Nazis and the grandmothers are like he's laughing about Nazis and it's supposed to make his mom do something about it and as a mom who can't do shit about my kids yeah. acting bad and like, Anthony Hopkins character talks about watching his parents get about decapitated the in front of him by Cossacks yeah. but that's before World War II so anyway yes. my time the time and it's also set in 1980 so it's not now anyway. Um, yeah, it's my like many James Gray movies, just kind of like really quiet and kind of looking directly at something that is really uncomfortable. And it does that throughout the whole thing. It looks amazing. It's got this like amber quality to it. But again, it doesn't feel like warm and nostalgic. It feels like kind of like old and tired and shadowy. He's kind of talked about it being a ghost story. Um, 
And it's it's stuck with me. I have thought about the like scene with Jeremy Strong in the car with his son at the very end where he kind of explicates the theme of the movie, which is that like you get yours and then you don't help anybody else. And then immediately moves on to lamenting Reagan's election. Uh, it sums up a lot about the world that James Gray grew up in and the America that we currently still have. Um, good movie. He doesn't make bad ones. So, so okay. good. Thanks. And also <laughs> interesting that Katie is the one to bring it up here. Katie, who has such a long-standing uh, agenda against Jews? against child actors oh, oh, and Jews. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Jews. Oh, Sorry. That, that, was, um, that was close. But uh, <laughs> um, because this is a movie that is led by child actors and they are both wonderful in ways that child and like real and believable and, uh, and innocence and then not in ways that child actors child characters are seldom allowed to be and uh, yeah um i think if anything katie i mean you talk about you know the, the actors are not going to suffer for this movie's wild acclaim and the fame that comes from it because no one gave a damn uh and i feel like it was not an exploitative but a really positive experience then to be exposed to this kind of story which so clearly resonates through our world today so you know maybe the exception that proves the rule yeah, yeah, I think like the fact that like Banks Rapetta is not like going to the Critics Choice Awards is probably a, a net good. Although watch him show up at the Critics Choice Awards, <laughs> he's not going to get uh-huh. slimed for uh, Armageddon time, which every <laughs> ten year old loves. <laughs> Never show your ten year olds Armageddon time. Let's be clear about this. <laughs> well, we're gonna have to age up our protagonist to talk about the next movie. It's David's number six pick. It is about. A uh, young woman who decides to go to South Korea for the first time, even though she has been raised in France. David, what do we need to know about Return to Seoul? Uh, yeah, I was going to say this movie could be anything. I was going to need the title. Uh, yeah, Return to Seoul <laughs> uh, is uh, the return. The return is the operative world there because. Um, she was born in South Korea before she was adopted by a French family. Uh, she is a character named Freddie, Frederic, uh, played by Park Ji-min, who's a plastics artist in real life. This is her first ever acting performance. It is the single best performance I saw this year. I voted for it as best actress over Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh at the New York Film Critics Circle. Um, and I am not at liberty to say how the vote went beyond the winner, but I was not the only one. Uh, I can say that. Uh, I want to be cagey about this movie because it is not technically out yet. It had a qualifying run late last year and it opens in February, I want to say, um, in a limited release by Sony Pictures Classics. It is absolutely incredible. Uh, it is a story of adoption and sort of personal discovery and belonging, unlike ever, any I had ever seen, but one that I gather from people I had talked to, um, you know, adoptees uh, that resonates with them in ways that are very understandable. Um, it's, it's jagged and raw. I mean, Freddie is such a live wire character. Um, she's bristly and, uh, doesn't necessarily know what she's going to be doing next, let alone, um, you know, is able to telegraph it. And the movie captures that feeling and sort of embodies, uh, that, that sort of volatility, um, and how it skips around through time and always zigs when you think it's going to zag, as she goes to Korea on a whim after she was supposed to go to Tokyo, but there was a typhoon. And so uh, she decided to go to Korea and there obviously there's there, it's a very loaded decision for her. And she thinks she shows up not knowing anyone. And the next thing you know, 
time is getting away from her. Discoveries are being made. She is looking after her birth parents, desperately trying to find her mom in particular, um, uh, because she has some success finding her dad, which becomes a very interesting thread. Uh, is made by a Cambodian filmmaker named David Cho. Uh, he, I don't know. It's just, it's wonderful. I mean, it's like, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary movie that I think is going to be finding fans for a long time. But now is not that time, so I don't want to say too much. But it's called Return to Seoul. If you're living in a major city where it's playing in February or in March as it expands out, uh, do what you can to see it. Uh, and otherwise, it'll be on video demand in all the usual places later this year. But uh, I am excited to, uh, and, man, to see the movie the when, it, so good. when it comes out in the year 2023. Listen, if it... <laughs> If it qualified, <laughs> if it qualified for the Oscars of a previous year um, and had a qualifying run, then it counts. I didn't know you were so indebted uh, to the it, Oscars. You love the Oscars. So. No, but they, uh, like like Lydia Tarr, a woman who we will never talk about in this episode, uh, they set the time uh, for the calendar in a very helpful way. Fair, fair, fair. Uh, that's going to bring us to Patches. Patches movie is a action film that also has high drama and it is about uh the women warriors of the Dahomey tribe and their trials and tribulations. Patches was I the only one to put this movie on? King. I th- kind of figured I, I I would be. But um yeah, I don't I don't think the Woman King is is breaking through in people's favorites of the year but i gotta say uh when i'm sitting in the front row of a movie theater watching uh lashana lynch like sink her claws into somebody's face with her metal blade finger blades i'm having a pretty good time at the movies um (laughs) i i thought the woman king it really blew me away and and it's so much credit to viola davis giving this kind of I feel like Denzel Washington gets lauded like this, just being this incredible presence. You know, he's people love him in the equalizer or something. Cause he's just like, he's being Denzel. He's doing this movie star work. And I feel like Viola Davis gets this just pure movie star role in the woman King and chews it all up. And it's so physical. Um, and even when she's just, luxuriating maybe not luxuriating soaking probably the better word there in the in the tub after battle she's still giving like full movie star squeeze wringing every drip out of this screenplay which is just classic hollywood stuff i don't even think it's that deep i just think they're serving everybody in this movie so perfectly and in an environment that we just haven't seen on on screen very often i i don't i haven't seen a west african epic historical epic in, in this way um and viola davis gets the perfect partner in this this woman thuso mabedu i believe is her name she hasn't been in too Mbedu. much yeah, but she is this is her God. first movie she's gotta be i'm pretty sure she studied acting here in the states um and it feels like kind of a lupita nyango thing you know just like we're finding a new star or and she she was maybe doing some acting you know, on stage somewhere and suddenly she's going to be in the movies and I hope she's in the movies forever. I thought she was. Well, she was on the Underground Railroad. That was her like. Oh, right. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, But yeah, I I was mesmerized by her performance uh, on some level. There's there's frailty there, but there's just incredible strength. This movie's just full of of physicality. Clearly, they spent a lot of time training and it all 
shows on screen. Um, and, and the movie gets knocked for being kind of simplistic at times, but I, I found joy in that. I liked knowing kind of where it was going and then seeing the spectacle uh, play out in, in new places. I, I, I think Gina Prince Spitefoot is, is again, the, the real deal. She's bringing stories that we've maybe seen before and giving them a totally new twist with her perspective. I'm, I'm here for it. I, I thought The Women King was fantastic. I like The Women King a lot. It was very close to a top 10 slot for me, too. I get kind of hung up on how this isn't Gina Prince Bythewood's fault, but like it's made too cheaply. Like it doesn't have the budget that it needs. It looks great until then you have like stock footage shots to transition between scenes. Um, and the whole subplot with the like Portuguese trader romance guy kind of like made me itch to get out of my seat every time it came up. These are all like yeah, but minor it, it gets inverted by the end, right? Like she's like, fuck you. My sisters are, are what yeah, I care but about. Are here. we ever supposed to think that she's going to run off with that guy? Like, that, I don't know. I didn't get so it, I didn't think she just like fucking run. Good, it's great. The, the movie does such a good job of building the kind of um, camaraderie among these women. Like, of course, she's never going to leave them. It like looks really hard to be a um, Agoji, but also really cool. Um, yeah, but, but it's yeah, satisfying but the fact that that's so effective, to, like, kick him to the train. Like, like I, I, well, I don't yeah, know. and then he like then he Came like lets curve. his friend get like beaten to death on the beach. Yeah, I can't that was how great. Here in that. Um, yeah, I mean, but like speaking of movies that like played in theaters and like found their audience, Woman King like did pretty well for itself. It like like it it found its audience and it really deserved to. And I'm really glad. Yeah, the Woman King. Uh, speaking of movies that had crazy action on it, it is my number six pick, uh, which I don't think is the last time we're going to be talking about this movie. But this is where I am plopping down international sensation follow up to two bahubalis we watched <laughs> on this podcast <laughs> it is rrr which is a our movie to describe it's about two friends who are based on actual um uh historical figures but they have been amplified to make a action musical drama about the uh, freeing of certain Indian areas from uh, colonial rule. Uh, that's like sounds like a really uh, like boring description because the movie uh, <laughs> kicks off with a uh, little girl being abducted from a village by some white people who speak English, and we're off to the races as one character tries to get her back while the other character seemingly is trying to help the police as we discover more as their friendship blossoms, I guess is the way to put it. Uh, this is a movie I wish I had seen in its limited theatrical run. I picked it up on Netflix and to paraphrase Java after we finished watching it. Uh, why is that not your number one movie of the entire year? <laughs> <clears throat> it's got jokes. It's got action. It's got stakes. Uh, it's got, singing your way through torture songs this this movie it's got dancing has it all Don't it's got it. dancing <laughs> boy does it ever have dancing does yeah. it have dancing and uh, uh, yeah very importantly it uh, focuses on the importance of uh, actual arms and an armed revolution i think towards the end <laughs> but uh in terms of the revolutionary movies i watched this year uh rrr was by far the most fun without like you know shitting the bed at the end like athena did i think 
So, RRR, yeah, yeah. number six. Athena shit the bed after the first 11 minutes, but what an 11 minutes those are. Um, I think yeah, the middle I, part of Athena's fine, but we could talk about that later. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I, I agree with you that it really goes off a cliff towards the end. But um, yeah, RRR I saw in a theater, uh, which, I mean, I highly recommend everyone do one way or the other before they die, just for Natu Natu alone. But I did find sort of exhaust. I mean, I loved it. It is on my top 25 of the year, if not my top 10, but... I did find it exhausting by the second act where I just sort of, uh, you know, it, it felt like it ran out of steam even when things were kind of gearing up. But uh, I will say, you know, Katie's apathy towards uh, child actors extends to animals, I guess. And I think there's a growing feeling around the world that we should use CGI animals when possible uh, because of animal cruelty um, and whatnot, all you know, very valid reason. But the technology, as we've seen in movies with even healthier budgets than RR, which is by no means a cheap film, is not quite there yet. And RR's cartoonishness, like the the dodgy animal CGI, which it leans on often and you know hot, frequently uh, throughout the movie and to great degrees, um, the cartoonishness works for the movie on the whole. It's not, it doesn't distract from the tone of the film. But uh, there are definitely examples where. It needs to hold more water than it does in RR, and it, the technology is just not there yet. And we're all kind of fooling well, it leans really hard on animals too, like an entire yeah. Oh, you would never ever ever be able to do this with live animals, and I wouldn't want you to. Well, and no, but I'm saying like it, it like, makes it that makes the flaws clearer. I mean, it's almost like it doesn't matter. Like clearly, it does um, not. And I could not disagree more. Is watching this, <laughs> but what? No, I just About think which it, part? It, all the animal stuff I think looks really good for what it needs to do, accomplish of the film. It looks awesome. I mean, I think it it works tonally with this movie. It's not a problem for this particular movie, but they definitely spent you know a pretty penny on making it look the best they could, and it still looks like a cartoon. And it's a problem I've seen in Hollywood movies where they were not going for that same kind of effect and really needed it to be photorealistic, and it was still lacking. Uh, and you know, it is better than. Then you obviously this stuff is it would be impossible with live live animals and wouldn't they wouldn't even try but um I'm, and it's better than putting animals in harm's way but it was just a three hour reminder to me that the technology is not there uh, maybe on Pandora. I mean, this is not a gripe I, were... I have with RRR. It's just an overall sort of thought oh, that okay. I've had percolating around certain movies. What if the revolution had had access to the banshees of Pandora? Like what if? Yeah. I mean, yeah, RR opens true. with a uh, title card talking about how all the animals in the film are CGI, and I just remember yeah. laughing because of how unnecessary that title card is. <laughs> but uh, they certainly have fun with their CGI Well, there's also animals. the title card about like how it's depicting Indian history, and I just don't know Indian history enough at all to understand the nuances well, there. But it's, a, it's clearly like, oh, there's some debate about this version of the sticky, past. Sticky Wicked, I think yeah. it plays better for... Uh, uneducated westerners like ourselves who can just yes. take it as a story about the fight against colonialism and leap it at that and not have to get into the nitty-gritty details um but uh yeah i imagine it's like the, i imagine for an actual person who knows the history it's like watching the patriot that mel gibson movie <laughs> and being like yeah okay guys um, uh, but yeah, if you want to talk about, uh, sketchy animals that, you know, are in action scenes, you should have put prey on your list, but you didn't because it's instead we're going to talk about with, yeah, our, but prey, prey is right. another, is like exactly the movie. Uh, one of the movies I was thinking of from 2022, where they try for a more convincing look and can't quite pull it off. Not on that Hulu budget. <laughs> Not on that Hulu budget. All right. That's it. We're halfway through. Number Ooh, five. Oh We're doing it. We're doing it. 
Well, we're gonna, you know, start having some major overlap yeah, yeah. here. Uh, speaking of number five, we can start the overlap right here. Katie and I have both picked the same movie. Ooh, you go. I feel like I keep going first. You go first, Dave. Oh, uh, we have picked uh, After Sun. It's a very touching story uh, about a father and uh, his daughter. They are in a marriage that is no longer, or the the father was married to the mother. The father and daughter are not married to each other, let's be clear. Not married to each other, yes. No, none none of that, nothing in this movie ever made me think it was going in that creepy direction. Instead, you have great performances by Paul Mescal, who you've probably seen before on Normal People, right? Yep. And then uh, Frankie Corio, who has never been in anything, uh, and is amazing as uh, Sophie, the daughter. They are on vacation at a... A uh, Turkish resort, I believe, that is under construction. So it might be sort of a discount Turkish resort. But as somebody who, in my uh, mid to late teens, uh, was frequently uh, traveled around for family gatherings at these types of resort resorts, I very much felt uh, being at the table that's making fun of the group performance of the Macarena that really hit uh, <laughs> close to home for me. <laughs> Uh, but I think the thing I like the most about this movie is it's ultimately revealed to be uh, adult Sophie's uh, sort of attempt to reckon with who her father was at that time. So there's a lot of things in this movie that aren't explicitly spelled out. Uh, there's some mystery. There's a lot of context clues. But I think in the space between all of those things, it allows you to sort of uh, make the movie work for you as an audience member, if you absolutely need answers, I think you could sort of, uh, you know, judge that something's probably happened to the father that maybe he knew was going to come and he was trying to get more fit because he's getting into meditation and like Tai Chi, but also seems to have a destructive lifestyle somewhere in his uh, recent past and might not have any good prospects for the future. I definitely you know saw I the Tai Chi is like an anger management thing more than a uh, health thing. But again, uh, I, mean, I, I don't think know that for be- sure. I think no, it could I thought be either, he was getting into a uh, mysterious Muay Thai uh, tournament off the coast of Thailand. <laughs> you owe me a life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, all of those things could be true, given the facts that were are shown in the movie. And so I, I really like this gentle story uh, that really spotlights humanity and relationships in a way that I think a lot of these other uh, movies have... Uh, elevated themselves to i think that we've already talked about but it really ended up uh being something that solidifies the top half of my list is there could be some amazing things that happen in these movies but ultimately it boils down to the same thing after sun does which it's like it gets quietly at the human condition uh in a way that really stuck with me it's Katie, inter- why do you have Afterson here? It's interesting to me that you call it gentle, because I think of this movie as brutal in this really quiet mm. way, because it's built, it's like, looking back on these moments between father and daughter that are really nice, but they're not always nice. Like, there's a there's a lack of understanding between the two of them that's coming in. You can sense her becoming a teenager already. You can sense the demons that he's chasing. And there's, you know, some pivotal scenes where they're completely apart from each other. Um, And then kind of having the adult Sophie looking back at it and her sense of, like, trying to reach back into the past and find something and being consistently unable to find it is this frustration and it builds to this 
incredible ending. I mean, maybe we're just going to talk about great endings throughout the top half of this list because there's a lot of them. Um, but the way it kind of like punches you on its way out the door, um, it sits. You, you talk about it being about the human condition, which I think is broadly true, but it's also so specifically about being a parent and not feeling mm. like you're an adult at the same time. And that's happening with Paul Meskel's character who you can, I mean, he's, he's a young dad. Like he's got, he clearly had a child as a teenager and he's not really prepared for it. Um, but then also Sophie is an adult. She's just, she's a new mother as we get in these really brief glimpses. And you, that's her impulse for looking back and seeing her father as a person and saying like, Oh shit, that's what he was going through. Like I thought he was this like immovable object adult. And now I realize how you can become a parent and still have absolutely nothing to figure out. Yeah, and I think that's something every parent's done. About becoming the same age as a parent was a particular yeah. inflection mm. point in your relationship with them. And that's yeah. why the, uh, you know, Dave said it's sort of a reveal. And I guess, you know, it, it's not like a plot twist that the movie is being told. through. Yeah, you see the DV tapes right. from the very beginning. Uh, but it is something that might dawn on different viewers at different times. But it, yeah, it's very much the the of grounding POV of the movie that it's that it's from the adult it's the a movie that's being told in these sort of different timelines simultaneously these different point of views uh, simultaneously these point of views that are stretched across like a 20 some odd year gap in time and how it reconciles the two is uh, very moving and how it does that uh, is what Katie alluded to in that ending which we don't really need to unpack here but man yeah I mean it, it like treats time as this like lim like physicalized liminal space where you're like someone is there but not there and you're trying to get to them and the way that it it, it develops that over the course of the movie is pretty devastating by the end. But it's also Critical really sad. Sophie Bardo. like meets these kids <laughs> and like has like a summer romance and like sneaks into a pool and like that like Frankie Corio as you said like gives this really great kid performances and again yeah. i like usually not going yeah. for kid performances kind of, but she's such a full person on screen it's kind of like one of those old mary Kay ashley videos where they went to some <laughs> resort and like they had a fun time except there's also a devastating dad story in the background i, I kept thinking yeah. like this i would love to go on vacation here um Looks Weezer's Island in the Sun plays throughout. <laughs> you know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. Yes, yes. They go to the Atlantis. Obviously. I think it's called Island of the Sun. I think it is. I think it's the uh, Atlantis Resort. Charlie, anyway, Wells. I was <laughs> Charlie Wells has talked uh, at length about how uh, this movie was inspired by It Takes Two. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Olsen Twins classic. R.I.P. Kirstie Alley, Rest in Power. Uh, Can I ask a question she about this timeline, though? Okay, so they do the Macarena. But she's got a DV tape. In my mind, Macarena's 1996. That's dated. But DV tapes were like common by about 2000. David, you no, might have been a no, video no, camera much earlier than I was. Uh, what about really? all the Dogma 95 stuff? But, when was that? I mean, yeah, but for like only... an 11 year old to have. Oh, no. I mean, my I mean, my dad had a camcorder. I don't know if it was DV, uh, obviously. But he had this like big yellow camcorder. Yeah, no, my dad like had a camcorder, but it had like VHS tapes. But like she's clearly yeah, got DV tapes. But, the no, one thing you're overlooking is that this movie doesn't take place during the phenomenon of the Macarena. No, it takes it's true. Place it's old. At that particular it's... moment of time when people groan when the Macarena comes on and only tourists that are drunk at hotels or with their kids who have no, not become jaded to anything in life uh, are excited to dance to it. And I think that I think specificity it's... checks out. I think it's probably late 90s and I definitely do remember around like 98 uh, my brother got a DV camera and I still had a high eight camera and I was like, son of a bitch. So they definitely <laughs> okay. Okay. That, existed somewhere. That in feels there. like valid um, 
urban dating. Kevin, give me your camera. <laughs> uh, all right. So that's after Sud making this debut halfway through here. David has picked a movie that I forgot to look up. So I'm not going to give it a good thing here, but it's uh, a documentary, I believe, called Descendant. It sure is. All right. Uh, it's, uh, you know, recently famous for being the film on Obama's end of the year list that he had to asterisk because of his own personal involvement in uh, executive producing it <laughs> or producing whatever. His higher ground production company picked it up. Um, I think they came on after it was made and it was an acquisition, uh, but I could be wrong about that. Anyways, by Margaret Brown, who recently made or m- not recently, but most most recently made a movie called The Great Invisible uh, a zillion years ago, which is a documentary about the Deep Horizon oil spill. Um, and was absolutely phenomenal and a clear stand-up from its year and uh, returns to, well, not Texas, but uh, the, uh, the the middle south, I don't know, whatever you want to call um, Alabama in the United States um, for a really, really powerful documentary that is about the wreckage of the Cotilda, which was a ship that uh, has a sordid story. It was a slave ship, but it sailed in 1860, which was after uh, the transport of of you know people human slave trade was banned in the united states um and there were these two real pieces of shit who uh bet each other that they would be able to import slaves to the united states um even though it had been outlawed and that they could get away with it because their arrogance was so great for no other purpose than that it was purely showmanship they um, you know, not that there's any sort of redemptive you know, motivation behind an act like that, but it really was just about uh, it was about as vapid as it could possibly be. And he succeeded and he sunk the boat um, in near a, a community that is now in the Mobile River in Alabama, in a community that's now known as Africatown. Um, and Margaret Bound's film is about the community of people who the, the descendants of the people who were aboard that ship. Um, some of the last known enslaved Africans that were brought to the United States. And it is a film that is sort of not too explicitly about any one thing, but is broadly about so many of the different things that we talk about in the country these days, particularly, you know, history and who gets to tell it. Uh, there was so much fervor around the election last year uh, about the curriculum um, and, and the 1619 project. I mean, that goes back several years now. Uh, and the right wing efforts to sort of whitewash slavery uh, in the United States. And this movie, although made by a white woman, it really does put the voices of the black residents of Africatown front and center and telling their stories and, and you know, affirming their legacies and creating their history. And it also looks at the devaluation of the land that they occupy now um, and the uh, pollution that has been exhausted upon it uh, over the years um, and how the community has sort of bonded together, uh, how the sort of the, the waves uh, historically sort of resonate through them and their families. Um, it has a very light touch. It lets the people in the community speak for themselves often in these long observational scenes that are set in town hall meetings and whatnot, as they try to look for the Cotilda, which had not yet been found in the Alabama, uh, in the Mobile River, rather, at the start of filming, and was very fortuitously found uh, during the course of filming. Wow. Uh, and that has implications, which the movie explores. Uh, and it's just such a, a rich, interesting story told by somebody who has a very, very keen and humanistic sense of how 
disasters of all kinds, you know, man-made disasters, man-imposed disasters can resonate throughout uh, centuries, communities, peoples, countries. Um, and it's on Netflix. It has been for a very long time now. Uh, actually, not that true. It only I think, hit Netflix in October. It premiered at Sundance last year, but uh, it only made its way in the world recently. But uh, is is extremely, extremely well worth watching. Um, it sounds heavy, and the subject matter obviously is, but because of how um, sort of just vital and and uh, you know character driven to use an inadequate term the storytelling is because it, it finds these these people and sort of like wends its way deep into the fissures of the story just through their own interests and their lives and the very real impact that the Clotilda I mean that I mean the, the, a huge understatement that the, the reason they're here is because of the Clotilda but the uh, but just the the presence of this particular story from their past has in their lives are all explored really beautiful ways uh, it's a really great film in a, in a film in a year that had a number of strong documentaries uh, this ended up being the one that I returned to most in my head it's called Descendant it's on Netflix you should watch it Netflix means you can see it yeah. unlike this other movie which you still have to purchase as of uh, the first week of January in 2023 if you want to see it it is Patches Patches Making the uh, debut of this movie on can't be the last our countdown. Here. Finally, I picked the movie. No, we all we all put it somewhere, okay, but well, you put it at number five. Well, I will not uh, over discuss Tar in my in my moment here, <laughs> but I will say, ever since we started doing this podcast, I've told myself you must stand in front of the public and God and obliterate yourself. <laughs> And I feel like I've done that. And when I saw that they used that line in Tar, I was surprised. And um, you would remember the time you tried to tell everyone that Confess Fletch premiered on Paramount Plus. I mean that that, that was embarrassing. You standing was, in front of an audience. That's why and, I'm podcasting yeah. uh, in front of uh, oh, Monster Hunter video fans game now. Monster Hunter convention. Yeah. <laughs> I work at Polygon. Um, yeah, oh God, well, I mean, I mean, what, imagine if we could get that crowd. Go anywhere for it. Yeah, I was about to say <laughs> live show. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we'll we'll, we'll talk more about Tar, but I, I think one incredible, what a relief to just see a character study and drill down on on something like this topic uh, at the length with the bravado that it provides. Glad to see Todd Field back in full form. Kate Blanchett going for broke. Uh, so many ideas, so many prickly ideas that have offended people who might be misunderstanding a little bit. That's my kind of movie. I just, I like uh, complicated, mildly abusive characters, I suppose. I, I was into Tar. <laughs> <laughs> did enough people see Tar for there to be discourse about it? I feel like the, no, like, but the, everyone the, 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 the cancel culture outrage conversation. abused their own orchestra. Uh, right. Yeah, I just expected there to be so much cancel culture outrage stuff about Tar, and it never materialized for some reason. I mean, it's not too late. Yeah, I I retweeted all the tar memes I saw, and it was not a lot, but I there were some. I mean, people. the memes were excellent. It was the like, this was waiting for people being like, "Tar is in favor of Harvey Weinstein." Like the, you just knew the bad takes were waiting, and they're still oh, waiting. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the kind of movie that instantly thwarts anyone who wants to reduce it to a pro or con take on that a won't hot stop them social for issue. trying. Yeah. No, sure yeah. Won't. Well, maybe this will kick off that dialogue. Uh, so let's talk about Tar and how you're misunderstanding it. Uh, or not. We'll get there later. <laughs> We're on to number fours. 
Katie gets to debut another movie that appears on a lot of a couple other parts of this list, but it appears here for you first. Katie, take us into the multiverse. Yeah, I don't really know about where this place is on the list. Uh, I got to this point uh, and I got confused, but uh, I when I saw everything everywhere all at once in theater in a theater basically by myself on like a Friday morning in March. It was a long time ago. Um, it was not the first movie I'd seen back in theaters. No, it definitely couldn't have been. But like, you know, it had been a while since I had been to a theater and I sat there and I felt completely transported by this movie, uh, like crying alone as I like got to the cathartic end of this family story swept up in all of this madness around it. I've not seen it again. And it feels like a movie that you really benefits from seeing again because it's such an overwhelming experience the first time you get into it. But I'm just so amazed at what they managed to pull off and how st- Stupid. So much of it seems when you describe it. And I know this was true of Swiss Army Man, a movie many of you have defended. And I still have not seen, despite my affection for um, everything everywhere all at once. I know. I, I got things to do. I still have the towel. I have a dead Daniel Radcliffe towel that we use. <laughs> Katie, you would love Swiss I, Army Man. And I, I didn't think that I would until I saw everything everywhere all at once. And I was like, no, I see how something like a dildo fight or a farting corpse can be turned into something really sweet and sincere and profound. Um, I also like, as I saw it, I didn't know that Ki Hui Kwan was, I didn't know who he was. Like I knew that I, I didn't know that I was watching. I was that it was going to be data from Goonies. And I, as it was going on, I was like, it can't be, is it? Katie didn't even know was she was like, in a movie when she was seeing, I didn't it. know. It was like, she I thought know. it was real life. Happening. That's how clueless she was. I thought I had, I thought I had jumped among the multiverses. Happening? I was, it was, it was such a wonderful surprise. I don't know what it's like for people who watch it after kind of the the acclaim and the Oscar buzz that's getting now, which I think is very well deserved. But I think it exists so well as something that you just don't understand how it can possibly exist. And you hear stories of the production. You still are kind of amazed at what they managed to pull off with what they had. Um, it's such a great story of what filmmaking can be and what it can do and how many people it can affect. It's such a like a, a heartwarming example of a movie reaching people and that sounds really corny but i think there's some corniness to this movie very, i think it belongs it's a very corny movie. it's a it's a sentiment that belongs in it. it's corny like avatar the way of water another movie that i love um oh. i feel like i could have put this anywhere in the top five honestly is this movie, I will is say this movie coming back up on other lists just to, to, i think i think so. yes okay okay uh but Before you it's just it. very yeah <laughs> i mean it's, it's yeah whatever uh, uh but it's funny how just purely in the oscar side of things how something how quickly something can go from being absolutely insane to conventional wisdom mm-hmm. in the span of an oscar race uh it it would have like there is not an oscar pundit alive who would have not laughed you out of the room if in march of 2021 you told them this would be one of the front runners for best picture yeah a year later and uh, now it's like, well, you know, it's probably one of the two movies that's going to win Best Picture. I mean, it's uh, it seems to be accepted wisdom. It is truly just remarkable to see that in action. Yep, that's all. Uh, it's excellent proof that even though I've devoted my career to trying to follow the Oscar race, nobody knows anything, and that's what makes it fun and not a cause for frustration. Hey, well, uh, I don't know. Let's talk about other causes for frustration that can be made fun as we move to uh, David's pick. Uh, there's a new Panahi in town, and it's 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 he's got a debut film that David really enjoyed so much. As a matter of fact, he's one of the people 
on the Wikipedia page. Ooh. Oh, uh, I am. That, oh, I am. Hey. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you called it a film that swerves between tragedy and gallows humor with the expert control of a stunt driver. It's hit the road. <laughs> Guess it makes sense. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to think off the top of my head of the last time there was a year in which two members of the same family, particularly a father and son, both had exceptional films. Um, I'm sure it has happened. Uh, I mean, the Cronenbergs are releasing films in different years right now, but uh, I'm sure it's happened in more recently than I would than I would think. But uh, yeah, Jafar Panahi, uh, legendary Iranian filmmaker who is currently in prison for absolute bullshit reasons and his safety, his physical safety was endangered last year in a prison fire. Um, he has no bears, which is now in theaters and is a extraordinary movie in its own right. Uh, Hit the Road for me was even more galvanizing not to take anything away from No Bears. Uh, Hit the Road is his son, Pana Panahi's first feature film. Uh, it is, you know, he's, he's the sort of can director's week equivalent of a Nepo baby, I suppose, if we have to, we're in that <laughs> hopefully small window of time where we use that phrase all the time. Uh, but uh, it is a movie that was hardly five minutes old before it began to sort of stand on its own two feet. Um, and not just because it was immediately so arresting, but also because Panah Panahi's approach is so wildly different from that of his father stylistically. Uh, this is a story about an Iranian family that, with a similar sort of crypticness to After Sun, is seeming to escape towards the border of Iran for, for reasons that we actually never entirely find out. But it's clear that the oldest son of this family has to get out of the country in a hurry. Um, and so his family, including his parents, his very uh, curmudgeonly father, who has a broken leg, his scampy, uh, adorable, like six or seven year old uh, younger brother, played by Ryan Sarlock, who it's like a Jerry Maguire, John, Jonathan Lipnicki level kind of cute bomb. So many um, kids and, coming up this episode. Yeah, I know. Uh, and their dog um, are all trying to get to the border and... It is such a ferociously bittersweet movie. You could even say that it's sourced between tragedy and gallows humor with the expert control of the stunt driver. I mean, it's funny. There are several incredible dance sequences. There is the most astonishing long take you will see in 2022 or in most years. It's a five and a half minute shot that is an extremely, extremely, extremely long take. And not in talking in duration, not long take, sorry, long shot. It is a long take, but it's an extremely, extremely, extremely long shot. We are like football fields away from the action. Um, and yet it, it only sort of adds to the, the power, the distance that he gives the most crushingly upsetting moment in the movie is really remarkable, but also darkly funny. I mean, there's this this real streak of uh, of, of gallows humor, to use that phrase again, that uh, is so affecting. The movie never has a wrong foot in terms of like how funny and how sad to be uh, it really beautifully threads the needle um life must go on but will never be the same um i mean this movie will be just a few minutes old i think before you probably are enchanted by it um it's opening shots so this is like that adorable kid playing the piano that he has drawn onto his curmudgeonly father's broken leg cast uh, <laughs> and it sort of goes from there, um, but without ever really being twee about it. Uh, it's a really, really remarkable movie. I hope it's the start of a, another major Panahi's career, one that continues to sort of push back against uh, 
you know, the Iranian government and um, where, where it needs to be, but is able to, you know, hopefully is able to elude uh, the, sens- the censoriousness and the, the violence that his, his father has suffered, you know, time and time again over the course of his career, particularly after 2010. And, and uh, this is not a film, the masterpiece he made immediately after his, what I believe was his first arrest. But anyway, I'll, I'll just wrap this up by saying, if you haven't seen uh, Jafar Panahi's movies, particularly like Offside, um, or this is not a film, as I said, uh, or No Bears just playing now. I mean, do yourself a favor. They are relatively widely available. They were recently in the Criterion Channel. They are some of the most vital movies the last 30 years. Uh, and it seems like his son is going to be making some of the most vital movies in the next 30 years. Hit the road. Hey, hit the road. Java and I did really enjoy Hit the Road. Which oh, I'm glad you saw it. Oh. Somehow. I don't even know how it happened, but we we went and it was fun. Oh, you actually saw it in theaters. That's awesome. Yeah. Good good job, Denver. Uh, all right. Patches is up with a movie that we've addressed already, but he has it in his number four spot. It is After Sun. Yeah, Patches. After Sun. Did I not understand this movie because I don't have children? I don't think so. No. You understand this movie because you have parents, I would argue. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. all right. this movie is is working in both directions i think it's been stated before but to put it bluntly it's 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 about these moments when you realize kids are people and and parents are people um and all of them are flawed weirdo people uh i loved it i mean we've just went deep on it so i won't i won't say too much more i love the camera work i I don't know much about charlotte wells other than that she made some short films and she stepped up and made a feature that i think could have been really bad. I feel like we've seen really bad versions of this at Sundance. Uh, maybe that's why this didn't play Sundance. It played like Toronto and Cannes and that sort of thing. Um, it bumped up. Premiered in the Critics Week at Cannes and ended up sort of being the talk of the festival, which is rare. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think so much could have gone wrong with this movie. I thought about that. My, my mind wandered a little bit during it just being like, how did she calibrate this so correctly that it's not meandering? that it it feels mm. m- like mm. memories and and drifting and hallucinogenic at times it's sultry uh, you know i i don't know why this isn't navel gazing or s- slow cinema to a fault but she nailed it i don't i i loved it i i think yeah. a lot of just abstractly speaking a lot of that stems from her sort of being in denial of how personal this was for her and having a lot of repressed memories she was working with rather than actively working to cultivate certain feelings and sort of reverse engineering the feeling, you know, from the, or the story that she wanted to tell from the feeling she wanted to achieve. I think a lot of it just came from the same sort of place that you see the character uh, mining for her own memories. And that's part of the reason why it works. That's my own psychoanalysis. I like that. (laughs) Because she has said it's not autobiographical. She said it's like it, based on her she, life, but it's not like a She has said that story. it is not autobiographical. She has also said uh, to present company that, you know, she's in denial about how autobiographical Damn. it is. So it's, I, I think that what? like there's some. No, no, I just, I think that like there's some truth there, but it's obviously not for me to know. No one would ask her, and nor, nor should they you know, about the personal details, like, you know, where did your father really die? Like, is he alive? You know, like all these sort of things, you know? Um, But uh, I think when she said that, I, it made a lot of sense to me. Cause I was like, this is the kind of movie that I think would fall into the traps that Patches described had it been 
more calculated had it been more like, okay, this is the experience I'm trying to transpose on the screen because I'm wanting to achieve this effect. Right. Creating dramatic moments. Such a genuine, like, it doesn't have that. Yeah. I think it came from like such a genuinely searching place uh, that it was able to yeah. feel as, as raw as it does. Searching is really the feeling that I think, or the, the word that I think sums up the feeling of it so, so well. Well, here at the end of number four is we only have two new movies to add to the countdown that we haven't talked about, even though we're only on number four. And wow. wouldn't you know it, I have both of them. <laughs> this one, <clears throat> this one's Morbius. a solo. Uh, uh, yeah, I wish. Uh, this was a solo one that didn't appear on anybody's list, I think because uh, when it came out and when you saw it, it was probably different depending on how into movies uh, slash whatever you are, because I think I saw this at the tail end of last year, uh, but it is definitely a March release officially. It is after Yang, the oh. second best Colin Farrell performance of the year. <laughs> um, above above Penguin, below something we're probably going to talk about later. Uh, this Where's is the fourth one. Don't forget about Thirteen Lives. Uh, uh, th- he, also, thirteen lives. He's good in thirteen he lives. He's good in it. It's not on my Farrell, list. But I want to be clear this is about his that. Year. Uh, but I mean, his year in terms that he did uh, performances, I really liked. Uh, this is a movie that really kind of uh, stuck with me. Uh, I found myself thinking about it a lot in terms of what it's saying about authenticity and memory versus biological life. That's because it's a science fiction movie that takes place in the future where two parents have adopted a child named Mika. Uh, She is Chinese, and so they have hired a second sibling, which is a robot uh, older brother for her named Yang to help her uh, integrate, not feel lonely, just to be a big brother, all these sorts of things. Uh, Yang breaks down at the beginning of the movie, and uh, Colin Farrell's character, Jake, uh, decides he's gonna get Yang fixed, and it takes him to some unexpected places uh, that involve some trippy scenes of Colin Farrell diving deep into the memories of this AI robot, uh, but also has some uh, Haley Lou Richardson on the side, some Clifton Collins Jr. on the side, and I think ultimately he had some really... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Had some really interesting things to say about uh i think the authenticity of uh where we find our connections uh that i feel like it says it uh, uniquely in this year's films i think bardo tried to get there but got uh entangled in its own bullshit uh but there is something <laughs> sort of about uh oh, when you're this when you're this many degrees separated from anything that would be traditionally considered authentic exactly what is uh the authenticity of a life uh even if it is artificial so i would say after yang check it out yeah not just an artificial life but also of an identity of a cultural identity i mean they hire yang uh for sort of like a cultural translation for their daughter and you say hire i mean i just repeated the word you used hire but the more accurate term would be that they bought him and then when he breaks they take him to the equivalent of like the genius bar First and foremost, to get him fixed. Uh, And the story is sort of about the the gradual humanization through Colin Farrell's eyes of this robot, um, you know, through the memories that he taps into. This movie fucking rules. I mean, Coconata, two for two in a big, big way. If you haven't seen Columbus, 
it's very much oh, as a yeah. piece with that, but go check it out. Um, man, I, I love After Yang. Yeah, it makes me mad that Haley Lou Richardson yeah. broke out in White Lotus, and now people know who she is more because uh, they might have seen more people might have seen this movie if they had. Well, they can still see it. It's still they around. Can. I think it still works. Uh, as a nice, <laughs> you don't have to take uh, it to the gen- genius bar to get it. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, don't take it to the genius bar. After Yang, unlike any other of the movies we talked about, uh, premiered on Showtime, so you can go watch it <laughs> on Showtime. <laughs> All right, we're down to the threes. We're going to have some uh, returning favorites uh, from here on out. Katie, tell us why The Fablemans was your number three movie of 2022. Again, placement, I mul- I like debated, but I've been so like Spielbergified over the last decade, which is a weird thing to say about like, you know, as someone who was born in the 80s and grew up with him in this very elemental way. But I think he is one of the few directors who could get away with making this type of nostalgia movie. It's not like Armageddon time, but it's also not as rose colored as you would expect from a Spielberg yeah. movie. Is this and a nostalgia shots of- movie? I wanted to ask you this. You, you- yes, I think it is, because uh. I think watching him make the movies with the Boy Scout troop or even the like beach day thing, like looking at the let's put on a show scrappiness of the filmmaking, I think is there's definitely nostalgia to that and about kind of tapping into your own power. It's like, watching a superhero origin story. And again, like you have to be Steven Spielberg to get away with making that about you yourself. Steven Spielberg um, is nostalgic for that night. His mother drank too much and danced in I her negligee a- and uh, filmed it in front of his sisters. Is that nostalgia? I, I, in some ways, yes. I it's mean, I think freaky. it's really interesting about how complicated it is. Like, his relationship with his parents is very much not nostalgic. And it's about sort of what we were talking about with After Sun, about the moment of realizing that your parents are people. And he goes through this way too young by figuring out that his mother is kind of having this emotional affair with their family friend and how that kind of wrecks him and how it makes him afraid of the power of filmmaking while also aware of what he can do with it. Um, there's there's so much thematically going on in this. I think that's happened with all of the Tony Kushner scripts um, that have for Spielberg movies. We all know that I love Lincoln very deeply. It reminds me a lot of Lincoln structurally where it's kind of like popping along through time and stories and then pulls together in this really breathtaking way toward the end where you've got the bully kind of you know, asking Sammy Fableman why he makes his movies and neither of them really understand what they've witnessed. It's like opening the Ark of the Covenant to make a Spielberg reference. Um, and as Dave said, it has an absolutely perfect ending in a year of many of them. Um, I just feel very warm and like glad that this movie exists and glad that a filmmaker who has meant as much to culture as Spielberg has is able to make something like this that's so like thoughtful about what made him a filmmaker, but also interesting on so many other levels that have nothing to do with knowing that he's steven spielberg i mean forgive me if i said this on our review episode uh which i assume we made <laughs> but uh I believe so, you know yeah. people talk people talk so much about how navel gazing and self-important a movie like this is or could be and uh, you know this may be true to some degree even if spielberg has earned the right many times over but i think it also sort of misses the point that it, it, it's hard to imagine any divorce in the second half of the 20th century that had a more profound effect on the American imagination than that of Steven Spielberg's parents. (laughs) And I think that there is something to be said for how he accurately, uh, if not necessarily humbly, but accurately and not arrogantly recognizes that his divorce or his parents' divorce, the way that he internalized it, digested it and spat it out through his movies is relevant to all of us who grew up on those movies. Um, and I think the movie 
clarifies that and implicitly communicates that in a way that allows it to feel so much bigger than just the story of him looking back through not particularly rose-colored sunglasses at his childhood. And the fact that it's such a more complicated divorce than what he's shown in his movies, like it's not about an absent dad or about a man who like chooses his own freedom. It's about a woman who does that and about a dad who like makes a lot of sacrifices to try to keep some element of family together. Like that isn't a story he's told in his movies. And the fact that he saved well, it for something. This well, it's personal. a story he didn't he didn't know for most of his life. I mean, he only found out late in life that his father. Yeah, I forget because in the movie, the his avatar knows about it from the very beginning. But right. It, but the, I, I'm a little <laughs> I'm a little confused about what Spielberg himself knew about his parents' divorce um, as a child. It's yeah, I mean, it doesn't quite line up with like clearly the, that story happened with him you know, seeing the evidence seeing of it the affair in the camera. The, yeah. But I think that his perspective of it has changed over time where he... Sure. The resentment that he holds toward his father, you see his character hold toward his father, mm -hmm. was the dominant feeling that he had for so long. Yeah. And it was only very, very late in his parents' life, uh, lives, uh, and they lived a very long time and like reunited in some way, uh, that, uh, that he really understood the dynamics at work. Yeah, I mean, again, like Afterson, like about understanding what your parent was doing in a moment that we had didn't have the capacity to do it and like forgiving yourself for that and understanding your parent, but also never fully understanding them. Like, I think what's interesting, I don't love Michelle Williams's performance in this movie. I love her in general, um, but it's like not my favorite thing she's done. But I think how hard it is to understand her is part of the point. She is this larger than life woman yeah. who kind of doesn't understand herself in some ways. And it's his love letter to her, but also knowing that he's never going to totally understand her choices. It also resonates with uh, Armageddon time in that it is not exculpatory and it's not, mm -mm. you know, it's not, it's not, it doesn't look back at people's childhood and say like, you know, I was innocent the whole way through. I never did anything wrong. I was this innocent observer. Yeah. Um, but it also doesn't flatten him with the hammer of guilt because like James Gray has said at infinitum in the interviews he did around Armageddon time at that age, what is there to be guilty of? You can't know any better. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have no agency. You are completely confused by what's happening in the world. I mean, you are um, not necessarily innocent, but it's like it, it, it really threads that that needle between um, not being that rosy colored. You know, I was just the victim in all this. And look, this amazing success I made of myself, mm -hmm. but also acknowledging accurately the role that he played in the story for both, you know, better or worse good and evil for lack of better terms also gabriel abel who is uh, not a child he's like 20 so you know a teenager but he just makes such a great great spielberg character like he i love his performance in this movie so much they got um, his hair and, so right i know <laughs> well he's just so good at all those things that he was just saying where he's not some white-eyed innocent and he's not like some shitty kid he's so many different versions of that he feels so real the the real young Spielberg looks exactly like my son. It's <laughs> in certain angles. Are you it's saying that many uh, times. The, I was slow to see it, but the Ehrlichs uh, coming in 50 years is going to be a real banger. Uh, I wish. I mean, I think at this point, Ace is going to be doing some like Spielbergian level accounting. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. It's real into numbers. Well, David, you are up next with your number three pick, which is the return of Lydia Tarr. She back, baby. Or did she ever really leave? Mm. Um, what is there to say about Linda Tarr? 
with two R's, as I learned from reading uh, the screenplay. No, <laughs> um, it's on, you see her diploma where it says Linda Tarr yeah, with two Tars. I yeah, and no detail. accent, obviously. Oh, of course, of course, of course, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, Linda Tarr, the breakout sensation of 2022, I think time will tell and already in certain circles already has. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what there really is more to say about this movie at this particular moment. Just to reiterate what Patches, I think it was Patches was saying earlier about how reinvigorating it was to come out of a movie and just be like, I cannot wait for the conversation around this. And given how toxic conversation is around everything and how obnoxious the conversation around Tar and if the movie became, I mean, that was sort of to be expected, but just like a movie that is that sort of provocative and butt pushing and self-conflicted and interesting and resistant to easy interpretation so rich and rare to see on a big screen these days and, and you know in this this superhero dominated landscape that we live in um and i could just tell from the moment i saw it that i was like this is going to be this is going to be a real sort of lightning rod over the fall and it was and it was really fun to go along from that ride i mean when i chose to i mean some of the as i said some of the conversation around it maybe even some of the conversation that i participated in about it was insufferable but uh <laughs> It, it was it was it's so great to see a movie that sort of like lights your brain on fire a little bit like this does. Um, and uh, I love a movie where all of the really hard line takes that were sort of like this movie is exactly about this one particular read. And that's why I hated or loved it. We're all just sort of blinkered to me. Um, and I love a movie that can do that. Not my favorite Kate Blanche performance, but obviously one that it's hard to imagine anyone doing as well. She's amazing in the movie. Uh it's all about Nina Haas laser eyes from the side in the orchestra. I mean, everyone is so impeccably cast. I love the movie sense of this like very erudite literary sense of humor, which is what we've come to expect from Todd Field. But also I like very... silly, like it's not only like erudite literary sense of humor. There's just like funny jokes in this movie. Well, uh, it's always sort of wry in a way that sure. is, like, I'm writing for the New Yorker here. I mean, he's, the, the audience that he's writing for is the same audience that he's pillorying in the, uh, right. in the Adam Gopnik talk at the beginning. So um, that, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I really, really love this movie. I suspect that it's one that will continue to grow in public estimation for a while to come. I've said that about a couple of other movies so far, but this is definitely one of them. Um, and uh was there something else i wanted to say i I mean i don't know if you ever see me irl and you want to talk go deep into the weeds about my theory about how uh lydia tar's relationship to new york's hockey teams is the (laughs) codex that unlocks his entire (laughs) film uh i'm happy to talk to you about it off does she wear a rangers uh, hat i'm trying to remember where hockey comes in she sure does uh she wears a ranger i mean i mean this is a short story it's not much of a conspiracy theory but she she wears a ranger's hat when she flies home to germany the first time because she is very much in lydia tar upwardly mobile uh not from staten island uh mode but we see that she's an islanders fan when she returns home uh and is revealed to be linda t-a-r-r uh and i think one of the more trenchant local commentaries that i was one of you know a small handful of people who gave a shit about was uh was sort of how you use the coding of New York's two NHL teams, so New York City areas too. I mean, I guess the Devils are part of that three NHL teams um, as a sort of uh, a language to communicate just how deeply Lydia slash Linda Tarr was devoted to reinventing her personality and like how upwardly mobile in a way, again, not dissimilar from some of the characters in Armageddon time, that same sort of social aspirationalism, but in, in a different context. Um is is brought to light i just thought it was a really clever detail 
uh, that obviously tickled my particular interests. <laughs> Very Love specific that tar, tar details. Uh, Patches, it is your time to praise James Cameron's new take on Pandora. It's the return of the way of water. I was so worried I was going to be by myself on this. I'm so <laughs> I glad. I mean, I went higher. Not that I didn't think anyone else liked it. I was just going to be mad at you guys if you denied yourselves. Okay. I mean, it just fucking rocked. I sat again in like the front row, was getting glass into my seat. It was so fucking out. I was weeping by the end. Well, to, to you know, some people die, but uh, I was just, I was, my brain melted. I was so excited. He made it. He did it. He pulled it off. My one thing that I want to say now, I mean, we talked about it at length a few episodes ago, or maybe it was the last one we did. I don't remember. This long <laughs> year was also very long. Um, I've just seen so much. Even today, earlier today, the New York Times ran this like piece ripping on the high frame rate stuff as if it's like a harbinger for the end of times that people are, are going toward high frame rate. What I, I don't understand. Like, why do people hate this so much? I love I loved it. I, I thought it was really cool, like to see it ebb and flow between scenes. And it was just another tool to make this movie weirder more unique and immersive and i i'm here for the frame rate when it's used by a master like cameron when it has a point and when it, when it's not just like slapped on like the eye crushing 3d of clash of the titans that came out immediately after avatar 2009 um i don't <laughs> think anyone it wasn't it wasn't used in that that was just post-converted 3d oh no i so you just said no, yeah I, I think that was pre no, 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 no. I, it wasn't high frame I know rate. it's not high frame. I'm saying much... It was much, not on Paramount+. God damn it! I'm not, <laughs> making, I'm not saying the Clash of the Titans used high frame rate. I'm saying that movie was slapped with technology that Avatar innovated, and high frame rate might but be slapped on other movies, and I, I, I don't anticipate it. It will be, because I don't, I, people are rejecting it, number one, but number two, it, it can be used to full effect. Like, I'm, I'm here for this this way of making movies it doesn't have to be every movie this but way of water the way of water i mean if they find <laughs> if they find a way to charge or to justify charging more money for the high frame rate rather than the 3d element then you'll start to see it be used because that's really why 3d took off after avatar but uh i do i did think that our friends at rippling check had a really I think it was marie in particular had this really clever insight into how the high frame rate could have been used even more effectively in the way of water because it, it works so 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 much better underwater when which even the new york times article pointed out when everything you're seeing is like completely uh you know computer animated um and that is that they should have saved the high frame rate for the moment that they go underwater and had the first 90 minutes or so like it's color in the wizard of Oz for a second exactly yeah. exactly yeah. that was exactly the reference that she made. i like, and I think I like it more... when the navi are talking i like it does feel a little more if you can crack the code as to why, uh, you know, one shot of E.D. Falco in an exoskeleton drinking coffee is in uh, 24 frames and the next shot is in 48 <laughs> frames, then be my guess. I asked the DP it, of the know, movie bothered, and he could not tell me, so who knows yeah. what's really going it, on there. It bothered, me, it bothered me so much less 
in this movie than it did in the oh, Hobbit movies. But I do, I do uh, know why. I do know Man. why. So in the first shot, Edie Falco was holding a cup of coffee. In the second shot, she drank some and it was really caffeinated, so she was moving at forty-eight frames per second. That's actually. Has anyone ever explained why they drink so much coffee in the Avatar movies? Because this comes up a lot in the first one, and I like I get the Apocalypse Now reference, but like, is it more than that? Well, Pandora's like at least of- twelve hours ahead of ta- uh, time zone wise, so. <laughs> Yes, it's messing with the jet lag and stuff. They gotta be able to keep up with New York time. I get it, yeah. Uh, but you know, it, it. I think the moments when it does work uh, compensate for the moments where it feels sort of slapdash and random. But uh, I mean, I share a general antipathy towards towards it. But uh, it's the kind of thing where it's like, listen, if one guy is gonna bust this out every few years. And he is going to make a movie that was made with this technology in mind, then fine. I mean, this is an experience I can't get at home, so I'll give it a whirl. And James Cameron, the 3D is always brighter. The high frame rate is always smoother. Fine by me. Heartbreak feels good in a place like this. Heartbreak. 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 I mean, truly, losing the the child whose name you never bothered to learn because you forgot that he existed (laughs) feels good in a place like this. I I will say I didn't hate the high frame rate, but on second viewing, I saw it without it and didn't miss it at all. Um, But maybe I'll see it again and see it and appreciate it. So people can get over it and find something new to argue about. Yeah, if it didn't happen for Gemini Man, why should it happen for Way of Water? Um, I'm going to take my number three and slam it together with Katie's number two, because we both picked the first time this movie is appearing on the list. It's Banshees of Inishirin. Dave, McDonald's I told you are I'm back. not going to put the donkey outside when I'm sad. <laughs> this movie is, has so many I, good lines. I, I was expecting maybe some more donkey movies on, on one of these lists, but EO seems to have uh, dodged beneath uh, most of us. But here we have. I think uh, this oh, year's Zemeckis is Pinocchio is my number one, though. EO is for sure oh, on my top God. 25. Respect must be paid to EO. <laughs> but yeah, Banshees of Inishirin. I really enjoy all of the performances in this movie. Uh, obviously, Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, but also you know, Carrie Condon and Barry Keoghan. Keoghan. I, yeah, I, okay. I, it was closer there than I usually am. I learned that from his really? scary publicist. No, good. I should have learned it uh, during the Batman, but it took me for Banshees. Uh, <laughs> He's to barely learn in it. the Batman. I think you're fine. He's the new Joker. That makes fine. him worth ri- is, worth writing his he, name down. Is he? Will Barry Keoghan yeah. ever be in another? Uh, will he ever play the Joker again? I this mean, is a sidetrack question, but yeah, that, that that's a question for James Gunn. Probably, it, probably for James Gunn. I don't know. I think Gunn's gonna leave Reeves alone. I think that's the latest that we've heard but maybe we'll know more in the next couple of weeks the important thing <laughs> is this movie is uh incredible example i think of uh just uh, two people coming to loggerheads and trying to understand each other while they're both reaching for very understandable things brendan gleason's character feels like he has been uh wasting his time and uh, hanging out with Colin Farrell's character and as just decides the easiest way to stop that from happening and to put more meaningful things into the world uh, with his music and the time that he spends uh, on uh, the small island of Inishir and means uh, no more hanging out with Colin Farrell. And Colin Farrell has to uh, 
um, come to terms with that and try to unravel why if there's uh, something beyond the explanation he was given. I feel like I'm not describing the movie well because I feel like the plot doesn't describe this movie as well not- as like the theme, the themes it's playing with. Uh, no, I think you're describing it perfectly fine. I mean, and I guess the themes go from friendship to the Irish Civil War, which is something I had to Wikipedia after I saw this movie, which I knew nothing about. Um, but I was thinking about Three Billboards as I watched this movie, which is Martin McDonough's previous film, and which really got under my skin for being such a tone-deaf depiction of the uh, South or Middle America or whatever. And this is such a... I mean, I, I don't know Irish coastal towns, so I guess maybe I shouldn't judge, but it's about a small town, and it's about a small town in a way that so few films are, where it is charming and heartwarming and everyone knows each other but also completely stultifying and deadly and it's about you know and some people escaping and some people not being able to escape and not everyone not everyone even realizing they need to escape it's got such an affection but also this like awareness of how uh, damaging a place like that can be and i just don't know if i've ever seen that in a movie on top of all of these characters who you care so much about and quotable lines and um like classic mcdonough knife twists um toward the end that um they get you. Yeah. Oh, to, they to, get you. Yeah. Uh, get I, you. <laughs> I mean, I think it's 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 also in addition to everything that you guys both said, uh, a film that resonated for me about sort of what we owe to the people in our lives, um, in a nice way, not in a sort of a nuisance way. Even if that's Brendan, how Brendan Gleeson's character sort of uh, takes on, but it's it's a legitimate question and and. It, in terms of friends and relatives as we see them wrestle with in this movie about like, you know, to, to what extent do we owe them to stay? To what extent do we owe them to leave? Um, and all these things are sort of in the soup that Mar McDonough is stirring here. Uh, and yeah, I mean, similar to uh, Patches getting a, a free whiff to make that joke uh, that I can't remember because I'm so tired, not because it wasn't, you know, immortally bad and that bringing him back down to zero for the episode. This does even the score from three billboards, uh, which is a rancid movie that has soured even worse over time. And uh, I think I was not the only person who sat down for this with a little bit of skepticism, especially because I've never really loved any of Martin McDonough, even in Bruges, which was his strongest movie. Didn't really knock my hair back. Uh, and I thought the rest of his movies were really lacking. And well, this so was often the first feel movie really where allowed me to appreciate him as like a the playwright that he is. They feel they, they can feel clever and smug a lot of the times. It's just I think is where three world three billboards landed too often. But this one is clever, but has such an affection for its characters. I think even the ones who are idiots like Barry Keoghan's character. It also feels more in tune yeah. with a lot of the plays he's written, especially the the Irish plays that kind of began his career. It's interesting to see him continue that in in film i also think carter burwell does a lot of lifting for uh sure does for these score. movies but uh the score is great this is annoyingly this is, this is a micro gripe this is like a micro category of micro gripes but there is no title card anywhere in this film anywhere in the opening credits in the end credits or anywhere in between guys be crazy what's it oh, called on the box. we never know if not for the advertising on the it's box, the yeah. box. <laughs> I have written uh, in a Sheeran so many times that uh, my but my my Google is still refusing to acknowledge that it's a word. So every time <laughs> I gotta go to that go to that uh, that IMDb page and make sure I was spelling it right. 
I also can't pronounce any of the characters' uh, names correctly unless I have recently watched the movie because uh, I'm not not good at foreign names. You Siobhan, guys know this about me. I can handle uh, Calm. I think the Brendan Gleeson like is like deceptively hard. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I was, I've, I've spent a lot of Patrick. Pat Patrick. Yeah, it's basically Patrick, but. I've spent a lot of time looking at the uh, the Aran Islands, Inishmore, Inishman, and Inishir, which is you know where these where this story is based. I think it was filmed. It just looks really nice. I just want to go there. I don't want to live oh, there. Yeah. I want to Islands. There. It's really so beautiful. Of... Have you been there? Oh yeah, yeah. How are these cliffs real? It's crazy. Cliffs How do people live like this? Stop at the cliffs more. I mean, you should look at the uh, the B roll on YouTube of. I mean, Inishirin is a fictional island, but it obviously inspired by all these. Real islands are around it, um, and the locations where they filmed it are very real. And the bar that they built for the movie really is on the edge of a giant cliff, and oh it God. is uh, definitely worth looking at. Um, go. Also, shout out, shout out to Javon, one of the great, great names that I would love to be able to get away with naming a daughter, but never could. So I'm not I don't think you're Irish enough, David. You got got to work on that. Nope. <laughs> but if you name your daughter Siobhan, you're going to run a media company, and she'll eventually <laughs> depose you so it's not gonna work out great <laughs> okay sorry so that was my number three it was katie's number two we're solidly in the number twos which is where david has placed everything everywhere all at once you know it's it speaks to how arbitrarily uh these lists are ranked for me because i think on the video that I've been laboring over and like really painstakingly placing all of the movies in order. I uh, actually had tar at number two and everything everywhere all at once at number three. But uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, I don't know. None of it really matters to me. As, as long as you know that they're good movies and are interested in going to see them, it's good enough for me. Uh, but yeah, everything everywhere all at once. Uh, the Daniels very much speak my language, both in terms of the zaniness and of their movies, their sense of humor, um, but also I think in their earnestness. Uh, which is not always cool or popular, um, even in a movie that ended up being at least very popular. I mean, I think as soon as it became so popular, it became less cool in the eyes of some. But uh, I love this movie immediately and almost without reservation. I saw it twice at press screenings before it came out, which is something I've almost never done in my entire career of doing this, just because I, I it was so much to digest that I just like desperately needed to see it again. It's a movie that, true to its title, really is about so many different things. Um, one of them that is more seldom discussed. It's sort of about uh, ADD, ADHD or ADD living. Um, I think this is a movie that, among many, 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 many other things, uh, viscerally captures what it's like to be in the brain of someone who is uh, wrangling with with uh, with ADHD. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, this, this movie is incredible. Every time I revisit any even parts of it, it's playing on a channel called Showtime a lot these days, uh, <laughs> as many A24 movies do. And I'll just come in in the middle of it and I'm bowled away or bowled away, blown away, bowled over by another element of it every time. Um, and more often than not, it's just by different facets of Michelle Yeoh and uh, Ki Hui Kwan's performances, uh, which I think. I'm so glad they're being recognized as they are, and Ki Hui Kwan is, is on his way to winning an Oscar, it seems, which is fucking incredible. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to, like, tear up when he does. But um, it, I think it, it would be so easy for a movie like this to not 
be recognized for its performances, and I'm really glad that it is. But just the the sheer imagination. Stephanie Hsu also, we should shout out. She's also really very good. I mean, she her. she's really really good. I can't imagine anyone doing that role better. But it's the the parents. Maybe that's just because of where I am in life right now. The the, the parent roles are really resonating with me. Um, but uh, yeah, I just I think you know is the movie very very silly and very hard in its sleeve and does it repeat you know some of the same jokes sort of at an imagery ad nauseum i mean all those arguments could be made i do think that it's muchness is a strength more than anything else mm-hmm. um and i think that there is great 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 wisdom and truth in some of the things that it is being very explicit about in a way that it earns i think uh you know, there are, again, it's it's sort of how you make a movie, not necessarily what it's about. And there is a case to be made for maximalism and a lack of subtlety. I mean, this is a movie about being in the eye of a storm, about slowing life down enough to appreciate the things that are most valuable about it. And that, in my experience anyway, for better or worse, really only tends to be possible when you're able to sort of like get into the eye of the storm and really name these things that you want to hold on to that are important to you and, and uh, do that in a way that the characters do at the end of this movie. And it all, the, the sort of cornier you know, some would say that it got, the more honest and moving it felt to me um, in a way that didn't feel manipulative or cheap. Uh, it's a miracle that this movie exists and it's like a miracle seven times over that it's as good as it is. And it's a miracle bonus miracle that doesn't really matter, but it's incredibly cool that uh, this ridiculous movie is going to be nominated for Best Picture. Fucking amazing. I, um, I want to defend uh, the corny. It, yeah. I'm sorry, you finish. No, I'm done. I mean, if it, if it ends up giving Jeffrey Wells a heart attack, then it will be number one on my <laughs> David, that's your fault for reading Jeffrey Wells. Yeah, you do not that's... need to be aware of this. Um, no, but it's a great it's a great barometer. Like whatever is making him this angry this many times over the course of a season, that's well, you know, uh, you know, you can you're making a safe investment in the future of, of cinema. What's near and dear? Anything I that he thinks just is feel toxic. like the corniness thing in particular, like big obvious truths or something that like movies are built on and we kind of need to return to over and over again. Like I was thinking about Living, which is a pretty good movie. It's just not on any of our lists, I don't think. But basically the end message is like Live life while you can. Um, And I think everything everywhere all at once has more on its mind than that. But like big, obvious honking truths about the preciousness of the world and the people around you are not. It's always worth revisiting those. And like if they're told well, they will hit just as hard as if you saw them the first time. I think that it absolutely works that way in this movie. Ask ask me what I thought of this movie. Well, I mean, are you going to give Dave a turn to talk about it? I'm wondering if Dave has a, a time coming up. Oh, I have some time oh, coming up. Just out. quick ask me what I thought about it. I'm not, I don't have a spiel. Patches, what did you think of this movie? This year's Garden State. Okay, next. <laughs> Jesus. I, you know what? I, I just want to apologize to our listenership for being wrong about mm. something that made Patches look right. Just because it it's so upsetting. <laughs> it upsets the balance of the universe, the balance of power in the, like the balance Adam's of power back, in the hierarchy. Okay. Can you give uh, me a sentence about how this is Garden State? One sentence. No. Next. Wow. Can't even de- can't even defend your own dumb hot take. Mm. Well, I mean, next is oh, Matt hey. Patches, who at number two <laughs> has put the Fablemans. Oh man, I got wrecked by the Fablemans watching an SD DVD copy next? of the Fablemans. <laughs> I was I. Uh, what? 
aka screeners I nexted, we're talking about? I nexted myself, by the way, David. Not, not I didn't next anybody else. Uh yeah, I watched the screener. I nexted you coming thing. out of the next bus. <laughs> wow. Like <laughs> Let me talk the about the Fablemans. We all think the Fablemans is good. Well, maybe David doesn't. David didn't really like the Fablemans. Katie and I love, like, love me some Fablemans. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm I, I'm hung up calling this nostalgia childhood movie. I really, it's so much darker than I could have ever expected. It's definitely the the skeleton key movie for Spielberg. One of my favorite like post Fablemans moments in the last few weeks has been. Uh, you know, after that opening scene where he's watching the greatest show on earth, then catching War of the Worlds on Pluto TV, still not a Fitware sponsor, unfortunately. Um, mm. But, you know, greatest show on earth playing on television before the aliens land. I'm like, ah, that's Leonardo DiCaprio. Wow. That's the movie. That's, that's the movie. Are you, that did it. Are you Leonardo DiCaprio sitting on the couch? Playing? Yeah. I'm like, that's the, that's the movie. Um, but I think, too. Uh, the two movies that have been, and I said this on our review segment for it, uh, I, I thought a lot about AI, and I thought a lot about Close Encounters, two pretty dark movies, the AI portion about the the parent-child relationship and, and the distance we create and how things shatter and um, the Close Encounters of it. You know, I, I think Spielberg feels haunted by his ability to make movies that he's the Dreyfus character in close encounters. He has like brain worms from another planet that make him instead of mashed potato towers, he's making movies. He can't not film things and destroy the things he loves with his movie making and powers. disconnect himself from the things he loves yeah. with his movie. Making yeah. Powers. It's it's there's a lot of sadness there um, and powerful self-reflection. And, and as you said earlier, Katie, I think this is spot on. That the Tony Kushner factor cannot be, uh, you know, underplayed here. It's as much his movie. He really took all these ideas out of Spielberg's head and, and helped them get on the page in dramatically coherent way. We haven't talked about like the Judd Hirsch scene much, and then we did in our review, so I won't belabor it. But like those moments of theatricality, I think, are really important to making this a great a great movie. It doesn't feel uh I'll, I'll say nepo baby again is that appropriate i don't know oh, no uh, no <laughs> <A> nepo movie <laughs> um oh my god it just it doesn't i've seen so many criticisms lobbed against this like oh here's another the power of cinema movie and it's just the opposite of that well, for like, me. stupid people are allowed to weigh in on things on the internet that's that true but they, they do crush me a little <laughs> bit um and I, I i props to john williams for just playing a few notes on his on his little piano and closing out a tremendous career and, and and doing the heavy lifting here when it needs to. I think we may have mentioned this as well. I can't remember if this was our podcast or Steven Spielberg talking on the DGA podcast, but the score comes in like 20 minutes into the movie. Like it's not. I think that was Spielberg talking okay. on the DGA podcast. I thought, it was, I thought it was one of us. That's Paul Thomas Anderson pointing okay. that out to Spielberg. Yeah, no, I thought that was, uh, and that is really effective. Which I know is a, com those, uh, that particular couple would often be mistaken for. I thought uh, that, that was like you and me talking. Yeah, 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 no, exactly. Yeah. Paul mm -hmm. Thomas Anderson yeah. and Spielberg. Very similar. Uh, anyway, the Failments, it's great. I loved it. I can't wait to watch it again. Yeah, me too. Great movie. Mm-hmm. The Fable Bins, which brings it to Dave Gonzalez's turn to say, boy, Tar was a good movie. So good, <laughs> it was my second favorite of the year. What's your favorite uh, scene yeah, in Tar, not Dave? Say, to get specific. But the, the, uh, how the end uh, segues not into a classical music track, which would be so fitting 
but into a really great trap music track uh, that I have been listening to on my Spotify ever since I discovered what it was. Yeah, I love Tar. When I saw Tar, it was in a screening. It was a later screening uh, than it was supposed to be, I remember, because I was like, this is three hours and they're starting it at like uh, 7.30. And then they ended up starting it at like 8 because I watched the opening scene of Tar, uh, which is a vertical video, uh, like cell phone shot video of sleeping Kate Blanchett with some text over it. Watched that three times until they started Tar initially. And I wrote down in my notebook, this movie better be good. And you know what? I'll watch the beginning of Tar three times if that's what it takes to do Tar again, <laughs> because... You yeah. know what I still don't uh, know? who. So who filmed that video and who is she texting? The redhead? The redhead was the, filming yeah. the video? It's supposed to have happened like that far in the past? I think so, because the redhead's also at her lecture at the beginning. Yeah, uh, but this is supposed a, to be from like when like the redhead was like still in her inner circle. I, is it not Nomi I, Merlant, like the assistant? I mean, it could be. The redhead could be the person who's texting back and Nomi Merlant's observing her. Uh, I haven't um, nailed that as specific aspect I'm just, down. I'm thinking about all the specific things about Tar that I don't fully know or know how to explain and how little it matters. That's, that's, it's less nitpicky and more just like, yeah, wow. It feels, you know, um, maybe there is a, a clear answer to this that has eluded me, but it feels like the kind of thing uh, that Todd Field may have picked up from his time on the set of Eyes Wide Shut. It's like, you know, was Sidney Pollock's character at the orgy? Uh, well, probably, but um, he was definitely <laughs> at the orgy. But like, you know, was he? You know, was uh, you know, who were the other characters? You know, was the the girl who dies in the morgue the same girl as from Ziegler's party? I mean, that sort of thing. These are answers that are questions that are designed to provoke and not be answered. I think. I don't think it really matters who was taking the video, but which is crazy. It's crazy that it doesn't matter who was taking the opening shot of the movie. It's crazy. Yep, it's, I mean, I like Tar because it, it exists, as Patches was saying, like a full character study that isn't afraid to take its time to drill down. Uh, but also, I think even if you see uh, Linda Tar with two R's as somebody who just can't get out of her own way, uh, the, the, her navigation of this particular power issue, these particular power issues, uh, is more revealing I think about the about how we talk about it than necessarily her as a character, which is great because her as a character is revealed through completely other things that are not about how she's defined from the outside. That's a that's that's a folly. Uh, Linda, go back home like the <laughs> hockey team that you liked before. I've been paying attention this whole episode. <laughs> which brings us to number ones it's top movie of the year for everybody katie gets to kick us off it's it's tar it feels like such a boring yeah. answer i keep trying to that? resist it not being tar but i just have not seen another movie this year that feels so confident and confusing and enrapturing and another person who feels so real as Lydia Tarr. Like the reason all these memes work is because you feel like she is a real person who exists and you can come, you can spin up a reality around her and everyone kind of has the same reality they spin up around her, which like the world of fan fiction will prove you that a hundred different people will have a hundred different reads on the character. But Lydia Tarr is absolutely Lydia Tarr. I think my favorite scene in the movie might be that opening interview with Adam Gopnik because it's her holding court and kind of explaining to us who she is in this, 
it's not concise because the movie's not concise, but everything, every line, every physicality, every response from the uh, audience like tells you more about who she is and her place in the world. But, uh, it's so to kind precise. of piggyback on that, yes, on that the precision of it, which is I think exactly time. Well, I got away from it too, but it's also right. <laughs> but I mean, she is what what I found so interesting about that scene when I was rewatching it uh, after the movie came out on VOD uh, was. What eventually, if only for a millisecond, gets under her skin is not that like because he tells a joke. Uh, he like riffs a little bit and he thinks that he is making her uncomfortable by like bragging more and puffing up her ego. But what rankles her in my interpretation is that he is going off script, uh, that he is saying something that has not been you know intimately orchestrated by her. And that, I think, for me, gets to how this is, you know, one of the many things it's more about than cancel culture, to go back to something Patches said earlier, is about control. I mean, that really is uh, her driving mechanism, her, her the energy that, that she brings to every scene. It's about control and needing it, needing it over people and over life and over the music and over time, uh, and then losing that. And I think that is all packed into that conversation with Adam Gopnik when he has the slightest moment of dissonance and gets slightly off of her her uh her rhythm and you see it wound her for the smallest of seconds it's like five frames um but it's enough for him to notice and say something and completely misapprehend why it got under her skin and then things get back on track but uh it's it's so well it's it's so great how the movie does that and i think you feel the resonance of that throughout yeah that's a it's a really good movie. Hey, everything you've said about Lydia Tarr, I feel like you've you've said about Lyle Lyle Crocodile. So I'm a little surprised <laughs> that um, that was not cracking the list. You know, uh, Javier Bardem deserves more uh, attention for the performance he gave in that, but I don't think it is on the uh, the Lydia Tarr level. Fair, I fair. do want to see one more thing about Tarr. So Dan Quayle wrote this thing in Slate that um, basically arguing that the entire last third of so of the movie can be interpreted as being a dream or kind of a fantasy or something like that. And I think people rightly were like, it's not that simple. You can't read it that way. But I love that. I, I enjoyed reading that so much, even if I wasn't convinced by it, because I did feel this dreamlike quality to that whole last hour or so. Um, and again, what I keep saying, like the fact that it could be a dream or could not be, and it doesn't matter in some ways, that ambiguity and that level of like confidence in the story it's telling and not giving the audience the answers about even what's real and what's not. Uh, you just don't see that very often. Mm -hmm. Love us. Some tar. <laughs> David, for number one, has chosen After Sun. Oh, hey. Sure have. Uh, Heard of it. Incredible, incredible movie. Uh, not much to add at this point, but it's rare, I think, that a first feature is the number one of the year by anyone's estimation. But, uh, man, I mean, this one... Uh, Really knocked my socks off. A slow, I mean, a slow build. I mean, I saw it for the first time um, before, long before it had been acquired by 24. And, and uh, it stayed with me, but it was back in one of those times when you're seeing a zillion movies as part of a film festival. And its power was more, it revealed itself to me slowly in a way that feels hard for, for me to reconcile with the movie that I see now when I watch it because I'm so overwhelmed. But I think at the time I wasn't quite sure what to make of it or it was too much or the thoughts were just you know rather than provoking a particular emotion were 
were so uh, conflicted. And every movie I saw as part of that film festival afterwards just sort of returned me to After Sun and made me think about it more in different ways and, and register how deep, deeply it was getting under my skin and seeing the movie for a second time and a third time. And then I'm like, these are mostly on screening screeners after that. I wish I had that kind of time, but like a fourth, fifth and sixth time um, and eventually writing about it. Just it, it all felt like something I had lived rather than, than a movie that I had, I had watched. The memories uh, were that sort of raw, even if they didn't belong to me. Um, and I just think it's so true and smart. And in addition to everything that my co-hosts were saying about the movie earlier, I think it's also really beautifully about, I mean, again, this is me projecting. It's me, which the movie invites you to do because you license to do to sort of interpret, interpret it in your own language, but uh, sort of about the clarifying pane of glass that can come up between you and a really close loved one only after they've died. And we don't know explicitly that her father in after son has died, but it certainly feels that way when you watch it. And, you know, in my experience, then that, that can be the way that it is that like, it's only after, things are made final and you're not making new memories of somebody that you are able to have like, you know, goggles underwater, like a, that little micro inch of distance that you need to see things more clearly and better apprehend the person that they were and what you didn't know about them and the mysteries they left behind and what they reveal about yourself. And I think the movie, um, you know, really, really beautifully and honestly uh, articulates all of those things uh, in a way that also feels personal and lived in and not just, uh, didactic or theoretical and i man it, it holds up and then some and uh, it's been really gratifying not that i had a single fucking thing to do with making this movie but just as someone who saw and latched onto it early it's been really wonderful seeing so like this little movie um that was playing on the side side sidebar can was made for you know a fraction of what some of the other movies on this list have been um get acquired by A24, but then like find this, this groundswell of support and win all of these awards. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool. Sometimes good movies, good things happen to good movies. It is, I think it is entirely fair to uh, feel a sense of pride in a movie that you supported uh, in its success, even if you didn't actually make it. <laughs> Which brings us to Matt Patches's number one movie. It's our R R. Does does that, that was that a natural segue? Okay, sure. Yeah, my number one movie is RRR. I mean, thinking about my list, I was really prioritizing the best experiences I, I had watching movies this year. And I was uh, substantially rocked sitting in an IMAX theater. Uh, I think when it was one of the Ooh, only man. IMAX screenings uh, of the year. You know, to go wind it way back, I don't remember who recommended we watch Bahabuli 1 and 2 um, way back it when. It was um, listeners. No, we I know asked it was. listeners to recommend. Which listener? Oh, okay, sorry, I mean, I, I could not pull that yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I don't out of my hat. But yeah, I, I feel blessed that we did that. Uh, Quarter Quell, that we watched those movies. Rajamuli, SS Rajamuli was on my my radar going into this year because I, I maybe it was a natural segue, Dave. Like, I was amped to see RRR. RRR was on my radar. It was supposed to come out in January. Um, and got bumped for for pandemic reasons. Um, and I, I didn't get to see it when it came out in April because I had a kid. And like I thought my I was just seeing everyone flipping out about the movie in a way that I was almost worried that by the time I would see it, it would have been exhausted or I, I wouldn't have been 
able to see it in the kind of pristine way that so many people have said they got you to would see resent it. your poor son forever yes and i would uh, <laughs> uh, he would carry that burden with him for his entire life and then he'd make the fablements about me or something um mm-hmm. but might be worth it lo and behold like early in the fall when this movie got to play in an IMAX theater with Roger Woolley there interviewed by Mary Heron, nonetheless, uh, like everyone's coming out for our, yeah, she is on the Q and a circuit. She was is like she writing really? for Holy spider. I mean, like she is She's out still there. making movies too. I'm thank God. For, um, but yeah, uh, uh, got to see this in a, in a, with a roaring crowd packed house, IMAX here in New York. And it was a religious experience. For, for for me, just like having those kind of fan reactions, no one anticipating moments, but just roaring with cheers and gasps, and even knowing. Were they also? The, can I ask? Were they? Were the crowds also rising and revolting with cheers? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. the, full, the full RRR. Um, yeah, and and to the point that Dave has made. I mean, this movie is fantastical. Yes, it can be almost cartoony, as Dave has alluded to, with all the the animal stunt work and and set pieces. Uh, But at the end of the day, I I was also really caught up in in why I think it's a better film than the two Bahabali films uh, that came before it. Um, About two real people, and I don't mean that in a historical sense, I mean, just from a character sense, like, they're pursuing things. They feel, these are two great movie star performances there's a, a core of friendship at the heart of their mission which is to stop the british from taking their people and taking their land and this is a movie that has like flaming motorcycles being chucked at people uh a giant animal attack just sensory overload but it also you know at the end has well i won't spoil it but let's say british blood is shed like this is a violent movie too when it needs to be and as we've also said there's big musical numbers there's big like tearjerker moments it's a big big movie in about every way and i i thought it all harmonized and and laid we wouldn't be raving about it and cheering if if the moments weren't earned through the kind of like character work and I, again, I'll let you chime in in a second, David. But um, David also alluded to like the the politics of, of the movie, and you know I've talked to people about it and, and read some things about it, and it is complicated. I think from what I understand, it's it's the movie's not saying enough about certain issues and kind of echoing things that are happening on a nationalistic level in India in an unfortunate way. It kind of reminds me of like Top Gun Maverick. For all the cheers that movie has delivered, uh, it's still kind of militaristic propaganda that we are king Have you overlooked. seen Top Gun Maverick? I finally have too. Yes, I, yeah. I should mention. Oh the, my the god, shoe buried the lead. Didn't make, we, we, talked, we, we talked about this. Did we? I have seen it. Uh, I had a really good time with that movie, but uh, maybe I should have seen that in a the theater. Um, but yeah, RR for me, it, yeah, it has some complications there and I, I do have the privilege of watching it without maybe in in the under the veil of of ignorance on some level but man it all coalesces it all comes together it's fully which we've all given to ourselves multiple yes. times many times uh, now, david what were you going to say about uh, no i was just going to say that uh you know part of me twinges whenever anyone talks about the musical numbers in rr just because oh really the musical number i mean like really one towers over the rest. Oh, there's what there's people a, talk about a heavy movie, song. Talk about, there's like a sad song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's like the end credits, which rule. <laughs> but uh there are people talk about the um 
that shot of all the animals being released, uh, you know, the big attack at the end of the first act. And they talk about the, as you alluded to, the, the violence in the end. But this is a three hour movie that has one scene that is so exponentially better than every other scene in this movie and almost any other movie that it, it just baffles me whenever people don't lead with that. Um, it's like the whole world just sort of stops for not to not to, uh, which um, <laughs> is, you know, some, some of the finest example of a you know, classic Bollywood and Hollywood tradition. Um, but it's not, it's not, uh, and it is a scene wheel here, thanks but to the magic of, it is just so exuberant and so thanks fun. Thanks to the magic of, as David, as Dave said, it's on Netflix, uh, dubbed in Hindi, I believe. Um, so if you really want to watch it, you can watch it right now if you have Netflix. Yeah, but the, I, the Hindi dub, the Hindi dub is just not, just does not have the same juice. You might be right, but I will I, say, I'm not, but I, I can watch Natu Natu anytime with my two children who are the biggest fans. My baby is rocking to Natu Natu. <laughs> it is his favorite song, and it and it really makes him stop talking, crying, and stuff. It's, it's also I, um, I have shown Natu Natu to my kids. Also, they're losing their minds. I feel like they should see what pe- what human beings are capable of. <laughs> my daughter has walked up to Elisa like and said, "Play Natu Natu from RRR." Very proud <laughs> father, mother. Uh, Elisa and I went on a staycation last weekend, uh, last week for one night at the Soho Grand while my in-laws watched Asa and part of our romantic getaway for two nine months pregnant was uh was to watch just not to not to on oh, YouTube um but um which that scene happens in English and then I don't think it's dubbed in the song so I think that's your that's the Tagulu version for a little bit right yeah yeah I mean it's uh yeah and the um other thing I was gonna say and you would my body is not a great advertisement for this but it is a great uh, exercise song. It kills on my cardio mix. <laughs> Which brings us to me, the final person picking a number one movie. And this is where I placed everything everywhere all at once. Take that, Batches. <laughs> the movie uh, that is uh, about family, is about traditions, it's about choices. It has an ADHD brain. Uh, like David mentioned, it's a celebration of what movie making is, uh, like Katie mentioned, and as a huge fan of the Daniels, so much so that the Swiss Army Band soundtrack is still, I think, seven out of my ten alarms. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of Swiss Army Man in the morning in my household, even still here. Uh, I was so happy to see them uh, not have to step down uh, things that make Daniel's productions a special, mostly penises, but also lots of other things uh, for this film and have it be just accepted at the level that it was. Also, Stephanie Sue, great performance as uh, the villain Jobu Tapaki slash Joy, the daughter. Um, great experience watching this in the theater with Java and being like, she looks really familiar to me. And then realizing we were both extras in this movie called The Four Face Liar together. Wow. So I I have also acted with Stephanie Sue, uh, pretended to be drunk, uh, like a normal person, but not at all at the level that anybody in this movie is. Uh I love how we were poised. This is just basically me, but you know what? It's my list. I'm we're at the end here. Let's just do this. I have for working on like a marvel book all year and being like here comes the multiverse to have uh marvel's big push into letting people 
you know, understand the dimensions of a multiverse, be completely bowled over by everything everywhere all at once and the ramifications of it and how fun it was in comparison to how Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness somehow falls flat, probably because it only has like three or four universes. Uh, everything everywhere all at once is just uh, rewatched it last week to make sure it deserved to be here at the number one spot. And it absolutely does. Can Action I, movie, family movie, special effect movie. Love it. Good. If Dave. you if you like me and like Dave uh, like this movie, not that you like us, but similar to us like this movie and Katie and not Matt Patches. <laughs> right. Shame on you, Matt Too Patches. Long. Shame on you. Uh, you should, I, I cannot recommend highly enough that you rent it or buy it or whatever you need to do, um, and go frame by frame at the end through the, when, when, when Michelle Yeoh's character is having her big freak out and she's seeing, you know, talking about there being four or five universes versus the dozens, if not more that they created for this movie, just go frame by frame when they're zipping by and see all the you know, various machinations of Michelle Yeoh's, all the various universes and versions of her they created. It is more astonishing than your eye could ever pick up in one breakthrough. I mean, these Photoshop jobs or makeup jobs, whatever they did, there are so many incredible looks and every one of them is uh, sillier and more surprising than the last. And it is really, really fun to go check them out. Back in my Tumblr days, I would have been making posts for weeks of just frame grabs. <laughs> of these, back uh, Tumblr. Yeah. Well, I don't know what the Daniels are doing next, but I'm pretty sure at this point it's going to involve a dildo. Uh, so that's all we really wait, know. Wait, sorry, sorry to pile on one more side note, just because we talked yeah. so much about our kids. Uh, I don't know what the Daniels are doing as Daniels next, but Daniel Kwan has released recently with A24 two children's books um, that <laughs> are extremely Daniel Kwan-ish. And I mean that in the best of ways. Uh, one of them is called like 30 minutes to sleep or something along those lines and is a four dimensional children's story. 24 about minutes trying to, to bedtime. Kid, 20, 24 minutes to bedtime about like putting a kid to, to bed um, and is, you know, a little too much for my three year old to handle. But I love it <laughs> and I cannot wait until he's old enough to appreciate it. And the other one, which the thing is called that uh, I will get to the bottom of this is uh, about a dog investigating a car crash and ends up, you know, in the nexus of time and space itself as you would expect um from a children's book written by daniel kwan excellent uh so that's one thing that they've done next and if if any of everything everywhere all at once uh did it for you and you have kids or not really i mean these books are totally enjoyable as adults uh check that out anyway i'm done plugging now Yeah, we did it. Uh, so you can uh, see a list of all of our uh, various top tens at fightingintheworm.com. If the website isn't up, you're not here in this episode. So I guarantee you that's going to be happening. Uh, until then, until we're back next week with the normal episode, tell everyone who you are. Let's start with Matt Patches. I'm Matt Patches. Deputy editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. I'm also on Letterboxd at Mr. Patches, I think. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm excited for another year of movies and television and bullshit. 
Let's go. <laughs> and David. Yeah, uh, I am David Ehrlich. Uh, I sleep in a raft with my three-year-old because he refuses to sleep alone or in his bed. Uh, and I'm hoping that's not true by the time you hear this. We're working on it tonight. We've recorded for three hours now and he's been in his bed the entire time, but we're coming up on the witching hour. Uh, I'm the film critic at IndieWire. You can find me writing there. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. My annual video list of my top 25 films of the year or 15 more films that I love. Just about as much as the ones that I mentioned on my top 10 will be out on Monday, uh, January 9th. And I only plug that or especially plug that because uh, as per annual tradition, there's going to be a fundraiser attached to that. The details of that are still being worked out, but it will be a worthy cause. Uh, if you care about any of the stuff that we do, please consider checking it out. And that's me. And Katie Rich. Oh, I go. I don't go last. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair on Little Golden Men. I interviewed James Cameron this week with Russell Carpenter, his DP. What? That was fun. Uh, I interviewed him for the holidays, but it uh, it was good. It was very technical. They go they go real deep, real fast. So I did my best to keep up. Uh, so you can go listen to that, um, or you can follow me on Twitter at uh, K A T E Y R I C H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R. But I'm not at the end, so I have nothing else to say. We didn't have a lightning round question anyway. That's right. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at D-A-7-E. You can also hear me on the Trial by Content podcast and the Dave and Neil's Pop Culture Adventure Patreon-supported podcast at patreon.com slash D-A-7-E and Neil. Neil spelled the traditional way. This has been Fighting in the War Room's Top 10s 2022. We'll see you next week.